Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff this week on the show. It is Game of Palooza 2022. The end of this year was just crazy with new video games and we are reviewing a bunch of them today, including our big final spoilery review of God of War, Ragnarok. We gave you first impressions on that a couple of weeks ago. We will give you full spoilery review thoughts on that at the end of the podcast. We'll save that for the end. Uh, we're also going to talk about Sonic Frontiers, the shockingly good new mm -hmm. Sonic game. Uh, and I will be talking all about Pokemon Violet, which I also thought was shockingly good. Uh, Pokemon Scarlet and Violet. I played Violet. They're pretty much the same as all. You know You know the deal with Pokemon. I don't have to explain the deal with Pokemon, I hope. Uh, that's how they work. They're the same game, but with slight differences. And uh, we're going to talk about all of those. We're going to talk about some other stuff. And I think it should be a fun one. We've got a, a lot of games to review. Yes, because we've, we've been doing our birthday podcast and stuff. So we've just got, yeah, game game stuff has been backed up for a little bit. Yeah, the last two weeks, partially this was because of Thanksgiving and scheduling and working on other stuff. We wound up putting out uh, for two weeks the the birthday podcast extravaganzas. If you have not listened to those, these were so fun. We might have to make this a new tradition where each of us for our birth... Well, Sean, for your actual birthday, me, a couple months after my birthday, uh, chose a weird topic that we did not tell the other person about ahead of time. And then that person had to play along. Yours was... You made me watch VTuber clips uh, for a month, and we yep. talked about that on the podcast. And it's like a podcast diary recorded over four weeks, which is really fun. And then mine uh, was I made you play a weird Monopoly RPG I made called Chaos Monopoly. Uh, I, I'm proud of these episodes. They are two of the silliest episodes we've ever done. Yeah, I th they were they were very fun to record. I'm happy that I saw a lot of uh, fan response of people who either discovered VTubers uh, from the podcast that we did for my <laughs> birthday or, um, you know, as I suspected must have been out there. Some of our audience already was it was in the VTuber world and they're like, oh, my God, yes, finally. Uh, the weekly stuff and VTubers uh, meet. And it makes me happy because, as I said on that podcast, I can now just... You know, this will come up with the Pokemon thing. I can talk about the fact that I've not only have I seen video of Pokemon, I can say I watched Subaru and Okayu and Kodane play that game. And that is how I know anything about it. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah, I enjoyed seeing fan response to that as well. Uh, I enjoyed people saying I was crazy because uh, I am crazy. Have you have you like just been thinking over the last week like, man, I did not know that Jonathan was an absolute lunatic. I mean, I knew you were an absolute lunatic, um, <laughs> but there's just something about the like you had developed this game over the past two years uh, making weird Chaos Monopoly. And then it was like the, sl the slow revelation of me playing the game that all you had done is like independently invent the game of life, but like put it onto <laughs> a game of Monopoly. It was just like, oh, this is, this is, it's fascinating. You know, it's, you know, creativity and inspiration, it, it brings you in, in weird directions. Um, but it would be a lot easier just to make it a game of life game. So last week... Uh, the, the, on Monday, the day that the my pod, the Monopoly podcast premiered on YouTube, I was driving back to Iowa from Colorado where I was with my family. And I was in the car driving when the premiere came on. So I put that on, on the, I was going to say on the radio, on my phone, hooked into my car's radio, right? And I was listening to it and I got a flood of ideas for the next version of Chaos Monopoly. <laughs> 
Uh, and Sean, I just... Do you want me to bring up just a preview of some of the things I'm adding to the game for... I have no idea when this will be done, when we might play it again on the podcast, but do you want to know some of what I, I've added? Sure, yeah. What, what What's going on? What are, what are these, like, upcoming patch notes? Um, what yeah. does it say? Well, it's going to be very different, because the biggest thing we're adding is uh, stats. You talked about this a couple times in the mm-hmm. show, that we should have player stats, D&D style. There's going to be five statistics. Um, you're going to be able to start with five, one of five different classes. Uh, classes that I'm so far... not The names for all of them are not solidified, but things like Fat Cat, Street Fighter, Madman, Roadrunner, and Average Joe are my class names so far. But it's stuff like... Um, you know, you'll have a there's a business stat BUS for what kinds of properties you can buy and what and bartering and things like that. There's an intelligence stat for working with money management. Also, will help you be less susceptible to conditions like the anti-vaxxer condition. Um, there's dexterity for speed, so you can go faster around the board. I've completely reworked the property buying system because I fully yeah. realized in this last playthrough that it was completely incidental to the actual game. So it's going to be worked in. Um, much more smoothly. I'm reworking some of the win conditions. So dying is one win condition. I'm also going to make having a certain amount of money a win condition so that money becomes more of a like thing you're worried about while playing the game. Uh, yeah, I'm working through a bunch of that. We're going to have... I realized there was a little bit of confusion while playing of like how to do everything on every turn. So inspired by... Uh, <laughs> This is going to sound stupid. Inspired by Yu-Gi-Oh, mm-hmm. which has its dumb like phases, like main phase one, battle phase, main phase two. I've added in something like that, so we have a clear phase of play. Uh, it's becoming much more complicated, but I think it'll be much more fun. Good. Yeah, and then it gets to kind of, I think, that sounds like it is becoming more the thing you had initially pitched it as, which is like D&D style stuff merged with Monopoly and less goofy game of life events merged with Monopoly, which was the reality of the game. Not to say that it wasn't fun, um, but it was, yes. it, I, it was a it was different than what I expected when you were talking about it. You know, it was it's a stupid thing that I've been working on on the side for, <laughs> yes. for two years. I'm not like it's, this is not like I'm a professional game designer pitching this to Hasbro. You know, although God, they make so many fucking versions of Monopoly, Sean. Not just I mean, everyone knows there's like there's you know there's Dragon Ball Monopoly and there's Sonic Monopoly and there's Pokemon Monopoly. There's <laughs> They have a, the Simpsons had a joke about this where they're going through all of them and they go, Edna Krabopoly, and there's like, a, for every character on The Simpsons, there's one. But they also make all these alternate versions like Monopoly with like modern money amounts, Monopoly, the never ending version where the board is twice as big and it's harder to win. Um, I, you know, who knows? Maybe at some point they'll do my D&D version of Monopoly, which at that point will have like a 300 page rule book. Yeah, well, you'll have to buy separate manuals. You know, it's like, here's the property manual yes. that you have to go buy. Um, and it's like, that's where all the stuff about the property is. Like, you can't really play the game unless you've bought the property manual and the monster manual and all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, I did, here's, here's a preview. This is a years off preview because this will have to be the revision after this revision. But I, I was talking to Thomas on the phone and I was joking. He said, so when are you adding magic to the game? And I said, well, that'll be the first expansion pack to Chaos (laughs) Monopoly. Once this version is done is Chaos Monopoly, Magic and Wizards. Uh, so coming 2025, Chaos Monopoly, Magic and Wizards, where we somehow integrate, I don't know how that will work, I have no idea what that even means, but there will be Magic and Wizards in a future version of Chaos Monopoly. Great, you know, I think this is, you know, this is the way that a lot of like, er, you know, uh, early access type games work is, you know, you don't exactly (laughs) know what the systems are, but hey, like people like Magic and video games, so if you just say you're going to put it in there, you'll figure out eventually, it'll be fine. 
Exactly. Exactly. I'm not asking anyone for money. This is just me being an idiot. So I can say whatever I want. All right. Coming next month, my Kickstarter for Chaos Monopoly. I'm kidding. Um, Yes. So uh, a couple other quick pieces of housekeeping. This is probably going to, you know, anything could happen. This is probably going to be the last Weekly Stuff podcast of 2022. Uh, We don't usually end the season this early, but uh, we're working on a bunch of other stuff, including season two of Japanimation Station, which is called UFO Table Moonworks, and it is us going through all of the UFO Table animated adaptations of Type Moons, visual novels, and light novels, The Garden of Sinners, Fate's Day Night, uh, stuff like that. Those are the two things. Yeah. Uh, Fate's Day Night just has a bunch of different components. Um, so we're going to be talking about all of that, and, and we are deep into production on that. We've done about a third of the season is produced. Mm-hmm. But we're going to be working on that. There might be some other stuff for the Weekly Stuff podcast itself we're working on. Maybe that Enter the Matrix episode. I don't know. But I think, uh, you know, the end of this year is going to be kind of quiet. A lot of other shows are, you know, going off the air. Like John Oliver, his show on HBO goes off for December. So fuck it. We can do that. And his show is also weekly. It's okay. Yes. uh, Yeah. There's like just not a lot of other stuff going on that's like super pressing that we have to do podcasts for. Yes, and of course, there are a couple of other little game releases and stuff like that that we will talk about um, when we come back. And I would suspect that when we come back in January, our first thing on the docket will be the top 10 games of 2022 Mm -hmm. or something like that. Uh, But yeah, I think the the only pressing thing (laughs) that we had thought was that maybe we need to do a podcast on Avatar 2. And Sean looked at me and said, Jonathan, please, no. Uh, that's not really what he said. But I, I, I said, did see I said, his eyes you know, go dead for a minute. I said, we have, nobody's making us do it. Uh, and, and as you said before we recorded, started recording this podcast, like maybe rewatching Avatar One made, made at least for me made me less enthusiastic about watching the sequel. You know, I think uh, I'll see it, and if I feel like, oh my god, we absolutely need to talk about this, or if it's just another massive monster hit like the first Avatar was, and we feel like we need to for the cultural cachet to talk about it. Maybe we'll come back and do that. But just expect a couple of weeks off here as we work on some other things, including the very exciting new season of Japanimation Station that I think is going to be outstanding. Yeah. I think you guys are going to love it. Yep, it's good stuff. Yep. Good stuff. All right, Sean, do you have any stuff before we dive into some video games here? I mean, most of my stuff has just been video games and or stuff for, honestly, Japanimation Station, which has taken up a lot of time. Um but yes, I've, it's I've, it's all I've been, you know, I've mostly been rolling around at the speed of sound, as they say. I've had places <laughs> to go, and I have had to follow my rainbow. Um, and and then God of War, which I finished, fucking like feels like years ago somehow. Like it feels like so much time has passed, even though it's only been a couple of weeks. But that was like at the beginning of Thanksgiving break. Um, and you know, Thanksgiving break somehow feels like it takes place over the course of an entire month or something. Indeed it does. So why don't we start then with the world's the fastest thing alive. Let's talk about Sonic the Hedgehog and his new game Sonic Frontiers, uh, which is outstanding so yeah. far. I think it's it's got ish, some little issues here and there. It's not perfect, but I am kind of blown away by how much they hit this out of the park. And I'm kind of depressed that critics and everyone are just kind of asleep on it. I think Sega's marketing wasn't particularly good. It's not getting a lot of chatter, but it's a great sonic game yeah i mean i think it's a thing where the kind of mainstream game critics are not responding to it really well but like sonic fans are um and and i think lots of lapsed sonic fans like us are because it is that thing where i think it is 
as with kind of like any Sonic game, it's more of like a cult hit thing at this point um, in terms of like um, more dedicated interest in it. But yeah, I think it's, it is for me, it's easily the best um, 3D Sonic game there has been. Um, I don't think there's even really anything that's quite close. The closest would be Sonic Generations, um, which I also really like that game a lot. Uh, but this kind of Sonic Frontiers, which I'm most of the, the way through the third of five islands, although from what I understand, one of those islands is very short. So I think it's mostly really like four islands. So I may be like getting close to about three-fourths of the way through the game. Um, I think it cracks something about 3D Sonic that feels like it's part of the idea that they've always had. And I think kind of some of the pitch of Sonic Adventure 1 way back in the day uh, on the Dreamcast, which was a very different world for 3D video games and stuff. This idea of an open, you know, 3D movement for Sonic and you get these bigger, more open levels. Sonic Adventure 1 had like the hub worlds and stuff like that. Um, and the appeal of 3D with Sonic, I think, fundamentally is more you can just run around as Sonic than it is the kind of challenge level thing that they found some success with, with like Sonic Colors and the Sonic Generations and some of the games iterating on that style, the kind of the boost style of games, which this is taking a lot of DNA from and has some of those levels in it. Um, but those games are all very like challenge level focused style games that are more like, let's take some of the tenants of 2D Sonic and make th a like 3D move set but the level design sort of philosophy is broadly similar. And this is saying, no, let's revisit the concept of 3D Sonic, make it more open, make it more like kind of free for the player to be able to just feel like they're Sonic by running around in this big world and just getting to fucking move crazy fast. And it's a thing where like, when I go from playing Sonic Frontiers to then I like switch over to Genshin Impact to just do like my dailies or whatever, all of a sudden I feel like I'm moving at like a snail's pace because <laughs> you get this very addictive Sonic the Hedgehog style rush of like boosting so fast around that world and just zooming past everything and grinding and jumping and going through loops and um, all that kind of stuff that Sonic Frontiers just makes you feel like Sonic the Hedgehog in a way that 3D Sonic games haven't since I was a kid. It's so fascinating to me because there was this video I watched uh, on the game Pokemon Legends Arceus, and I'm, which came out earlier this year. And I might talk about this in the Pokemon segment as well. But someone did a video review of that game, and I'm, I'm forgetting the YouTuber, and I apologize for that, where he said his like pithy explanation of why he liked the game was it's the second Pokemon game. And his joke was, every mainline Pokemon game has been essentially the same thing. And it's a reductive to say, but it's, you know, it's basically true. Um, and that Arceus was the first Pokemon game that was like, and this is a new Pokemon game. This is Pokemon 2, the sequel. And there's something about playing Sonic Frontiers where I'm like, this is the second 3D Sonic game. Yes. <laughs> there's something about it that feels like that. And that's a little reductive as well. But it feels like you go back to Sonic Adventure... And Sonic Adventure 2, which I love and I would say is the best 3D Sonic game before this one, Sonic Adventure 2 iterated on some things very well, but it also completely abandoned the hub world concept mm -hmm. and some of that stuff. And this really, and then, you know, a lot of the 3D Sonic games passed that. I was talking to my brother, who's a big Sonic fan and has played all of these, and he was saying Sonic 06, you know, remembered for its bad load times and all that shit and the weird Sonic fucks a human girl thing. Kisses. He, he, yeah, she yeah. kisses Sonic. Let's let's not <laughs> yeah. go crazy. You know, the, after the credits roll, who knows what happens? Yeah, I don't um, know about what you've been looking at on Deviant Art, but he doesn't actually. You know, they don't have sex in the game. 
You can have them. They were rolling family. around at the speed of sound. That's what exactly. they were doing. No, um, but anyway, you know, in that game, that really kind of solidified the. That was kind of like trying to do a direct sequel to Sonic Adventure, where hey, we have a hub world and we have levels, but then it really solidified that the levels were going to be built around, like how much speed can we build up, all of that, and th- that's where I think Sonic kind of starts going the wrong way of focusing on speed rather than momentum, you know. And there have been some good games since then, like Generations and Sonic Colors is very good in that they're all sort of challenge levels, but they're all very like, kind of like, it's almost like a platformer racing game is what Mm -hmm. it became, you know? And I think this one goes, no, let's go back to the drawing board. The It has those challenge levels, and there's those are very reminiscent of Colors and Frontier, and uh, Forces and Generations. I'm going to mix up Sonic Forces and Sonic Frontiers a lot because they're the adjacent Sonic game starting mm-hmm. with the letter F. Um, but anyway, uh, it has those. But the main like design of the world and how it's all laid out really feels like kind of going back to Sonic Adventure, back to the moment Sonic went into 3D and saying... Let's go back to that moment on the drawing board and see what we can do. So, like, the controls are very different. If you've played a lot of 3D Sonic, it takes a little getting used to. Like, oh, homing is a different button. Like, you have a double jump. You have this sort of boost, almost like, you know, you're, you're holding down R2, kind of like driving a car as you're going around the world. There's there's a whole combat system that is like a, a light character action game, like a little bit of Devil May Cry or something sprinkled on top of this game with a skill tree and stuff like that. And it's got this sort of miniature open world design where it's taking influences from things like Breath of the Wild, but it's putting it in more of a almost like Mario Odyssey or something kind of shell where you have the, the, the worlds, but they're, it's not one big contiguous world, it's several worlds and they all have their own sets of goals and you unlock parts of the map and it's got the contextual puzzles. It's a really weird mix of elements and I wonder if this is why critics have been a little cold on it because I think it's hard to pin down what it's Mm -hmm. doing like it's drawing from a lot of different sources and bringing a lot of originality to the table like it does scratch some of the like Zelda Breath of the Wild itch of it's fun to go around the world and solve little contextual puzzles like hey there's a little like set of like leaves here what do I do with those oh that unlocked something for me you know stuff like that but then it's not that slow paced all the time because then you might go do a big level and the level might be in 2D or 3D and it's just it's kind of all over the place but I think in a way that really befits Sonic because Sonic at its core has always been a weird amalgam of things like it's been very hard to compare like 2D Sonic games don't really have a clean analog with any other 2D platformer they're Mm -hmm. very much their own thing and they're very weird and idiosyncratic this feels weird and idiosyncratic in the ways I like when Sonic is, like in Sonic Adventure, Sonic Adventure 2, um, Sonic Mania, stuff like that. Um, but it really does feel like, oh, they went back to the drawing board and rethought, how do we make a Sonic game in 2022, not just iterate on this kind of broken series of 3D games we've been doing since 2006. Uh, and I like that a lot, because Sonic Generations was good, but I do think Sonic Forces proved it's not super repeatable or scalable. And I think this was smart to just blow the whole thing open and start over. Yeah. And and I think part of what it is is also some of this game, it reminds me of things like the like opening animation to Sonic CD or the OVA thing that came out over here as Sonic the Hedgehog, the movie, in that sense of the part of the appeal of Sonic isn't, it, like conceptually the appeal of Sonic outside of it being a video game, but like the character is not you're running on tracks. It is you are, you know, you're there's this huge horizon 
and you can make of it what you will in stuff like Sonic, you know, running on the walls and jumping off and like attacking an enemy yes. and jumping off an enemy. Like him having combat stuff where he's like punching and kicking, which he's always done in the cartoons and stuff like that, but has never really done in the games. I think there's just a certain sense of looking at some of the bigger picture of Sonic as a character that they never really brought into the games and putting that in there. Some of the storytelling feels like that as well. Like it's got, it feels a little bit like the Sonic Adventure games. It's taking some specific cues from Sonic Adventure, like Chaos, the monster from that game is connected to this um, and stuff. But then also it's it's just got a little bit of that like Sonic the Saturday morning cartoon, the more serious one. This is like, it's it's a story where it's taking itself seriously. It's taking like the characters' relationships with each other seriously, right? They're like a band of friends who have been through a bunch of adventures um, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and that's an, a thing about the game that I was really kind of surprised by is that it doesn't feel like another Sonic the 3D Sonic the Hedgehog game. It just feels like a Sonic the Hedgehog game that is a part of like the full franchise not part of like this little sliver of the franchise which is always what those 3d games felt like they kind of became this is like its own weird unique little part of the franchise that never really to me grabbed or touched the broader thing of Sonic the Hedgehog that I really liked and it's why I didn't play most of those 3d games along with like them typically getting bad reviews but it was like like Sonic Heroes for instance was a game that I always felt like playing it never captured anything about the like idea of Sonic to me or what was appealing about Sonic as a franchise there was something about like the slow kind of clunky nature of the way that that game functioned with its weird three team team up thing um like it's just this franchise has been so wayward in its three word 3d entries and this is Sonic the fucking hedgehog it feels like what they're good doing and it's you know it's far from perfect it's got a lot of um sort of cut rough edges and stuff like that um it is not like a technical masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination it's got very bad popping and stuff like that it's got some wonky physics so you know it's got jank for sure but the core of the game is so appealing particularly if you're a fan of sonic the hedgehog in general it's got a little bit of jank but i kind of like the feeling of the game punching above its weight it yes. sort of feels like an underdog of a game of like this doesn't really have the budget to do what it's going for but it goes for it anyway and like it's it's totally fine. I would not say any of those are deal breakers by any no. means. Like on the PS5, I would say it looks like, you know, a PS3 or PS4 game, but running very well, smooth frame rate, all of that. There's some janky physics and stuff, but what what would a Sonic game be? And I say this for the 2D, 2D games too. Yes. What would a Sonic game be without a little bit of janky physics? Um, it is endemic to the DNA of this thing. But yeah, I, I agree with what you were saying there. There's something like, you know, the whole line of Batman Arkham Asylum back in the day is you're going to feel like you're Batman. Sonic Frontiers, you feel like you're Sonic. Yeah. And it's Sonic not just here's a route to run through. It's a world to go explore. And you can, you know, run around and just look at things and go fast. But then there's a bunch of, like, opportunities for, like, little platforming, you know, tricks and, like, things just kind of in the overworld that you'll get. Like, you'll jump on one spring and then suddenly you're going on this entire crazy course, which is really fun. Or maybe you'll hit uh, one of the sort of, like, environmental puzzles or you'll get into some combat and maybe you'll be running up a wall. Like, yeah, I think you're so right. The idea of, like, Sonic running up walls, it's kind of crazy that that's never been a regular thing before because it's such a part of the character in animation and stuff like that. And so, like, and I'll say, so far, maybe the story gets better. I have not been that pulled into it yet. It's been a little, like, basic. Um, 
but I like having the characters there. I just got to the part where you meet, you know, Knuckles, for instance, and I'm never going to say no to Knuckles. And, uh, but other than that, like, I do like, oh man, this does sort of feel like Sonic. And one of the things that threw me off a little bit at first is that the music on the overworld in the first island, I think it branches off past this point a little bit, but in the first island takes its cues a little bit from Breath of the Wild of like, it's kind of calm, kind of dramatic music. And then you'll get the big, like, high-energy sonic rock music and stuff like that in some of the bigger levels and boss fights. And at first I was like, is this a little too, like, weirdly dour or something? But I really got into it because I like... Because that also does feel like Sonic to me, of just the, like, let's just move around the world and, and then this can be a little lighter, but then when the tempo picks up, we'll change the music up for you. And the, the general sense of variety is very high. Like, I've generally played this so far, and I'm not as far as you are, obviously... I've maybe played four or five hours, but I've played it in kind of small bursts. Mm -hmm. And in a 30-minute burst with this game, you can do a hundred different things. Like yeah. in terms of fighting enemies and doing a little boss and doing a level. And like, okay, I'm going to complete this level and 100% it. And then I'm going to go out into the world and I'm going to find, you know, X number of these. Or my one of my favorite things in the game, I literally like fucking cheered when I saw this, is Big the Cat is in it. And yep. you can do fishing with him. And it's not the best fishing minigame ever, but it's a perfectly serviceable fishing minigame. And it's the animations of every time Sonic gets a fish or a tire or any of the crazy things you fish out and he holds it up and Big goes, yay. And I'm like, Big the Cat lives! They didn't kill him. He's back. It's great. And he's, he's where he belongs. He's fishing. I love it. And you have just dozens and dozens of like uncomfortably detailed, uh, realistic looking fish models. Um, <laughs> yes. That cartoon Sonic <laughs> is holding up in front of him. And there's a cartoon giant cat man uh, right behind him. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Big the cat being in the game is, is absolutely fantastic. And I've been playing the game the same way. I've, I've furthered it just because I've been playing it for longer in terms of like, I, I started playing it on my birthday, I think. Um, and it is, I think it's a game that's designed to be played in like 30 minute tower long chunks. Like it is yeah. a game that has like a lot of different kinds of objectives. Like as you pointed out, it's got like, it feels like part of the inspiration for the game is Super Mario Odyssey or even like, collectathons like banjo and kazooie from the instant i was gonna say days. that yes like it's got a huge arrangement of different kinds of objectives that are all revolved around different sort of tokens basically that do different things um and all of the objectives you need to do to get those tokens individually are very simple um and, and most of them take like a minute to two minutes to do you know it's like oh i saw the spring in the open world i hit the spring it launches me into like a little platforming section in the open world I do that little platforming section. It takes you 45 seconds to do, and you get a little token that you use to be able to advance the story. Or you want to go do one of the cyber levels to get the stuff you get to get the Chaos Emeralds. Well, those cyber levels take like two minutes max to do, you know? Um, so all the individual objectives are really quick. But one thing that I like about it that separates it from something like a collectathon is that the game doesn't give a fuck about you collecting everything. Like, you, right. you know, you theoretically could... But there are, there's way, 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 way more than you need. Like, you do not need to get every single key from every single cyber level to get to, to clear that island. You certainly do not need to get every little, like, token, like, friend token, whatever they call them, in the open world doing those puzzles. Like, it is... In fact, like, you can get those at random. Same thing with, like, the gears you use to unlock the cyber levels are ones that you can get just by drawing a circle on the ground sometimes and it'll just pop out. Or uh, here's just some normal enemies in the open world and you killed them and they just happen to drop this collectible. Um, so it is not concerned with the idea of you 
getting everything. It's more just like a way for you to give you little objectives to aim for and ways to reward the player for just running around the world and engaging with what they encounter. Um, but it has, it is such a hilarious, like superfluous amount or like surplus of collectible items, almost in a way that feels like that is the thing that is most reminiscent to me of Breath of the Wild in the game, actually, is that it's like the Korok Seed idea. Like, Breath of the Wild was designed not for you to collect every Korok Seed. That's why they give you shit, literally, right, if right. you got all of them. <laughs> it was designed to have so many Korok Seeds that you're maybe going to get, like, 20% of them on a normal playthrough. And that's more than enough. It's just, they just have to be scattered everywhere. Um, and that's, like, the because way Because they want things to just kind of come out of the woodwork and, yeah. like, you will find little puzzles here and there. And not bet on, like, someone's going to scour every inch of this world. Just we want to put puzzles out there for them to have fun with. Yeah. Yeah. This game is very good at that. And, like, I think... Uh, here's a term we haven't used in a while. Emergent gameplay. I think uh -huh. you get a lot of that in this game. I think there's a genuine amount of, like, just pick a direction and start running with Sonic. And a lot of different things will happen to you. And they're all fun in their own different way. And, like, maybe none of the individual mechanics would be enough to sustain its own game. But put all together, it's more than enough to sustain it. I think the um, the levels, the like, I guess we call them cyber levels, the things that sort of, it, their, their way of we can do whatever we want with these is that they're in a computer. So we can have our Green Hill Zone and we can have our ruined city, even though that's not the aesthetic of the main islands or whatever. And I think that's fun. But those are a good example because in the last couple of 3D Sonic games, so like Colors, Generations, Forces, that's all there was. Mm -hmm. That's the whole game is doing those. And... What's funny is, in those games, I never felt super motivated to do the 100% run on every one of those. Of get the five little coins, red coins, and hit the par time and stuff like that. And those games would generally have more objectives than this one does. But I have found myself, even though I don't need the rewards it's giving me, I have more than enough of the keys or whatever it gives you, I have found myself motivated to do that because I'm having fun with it, and mm -hmm. because they're short, and they're off to the side, and because there's no pressure on it. There's no, like... You have to 100% this, whether you're enjoying it or not, to, you know, continue with the game. And other Sonic games haven't necessarily forced you to do it, but it is when, like, that's the only thing. That is the whole game, is doing these levels. I do think you feel some kind of pressure of, like, am I getting the most out of the game if I'm not 100%ing this? There's something about making them sort of a side objective that I actually think makes me want to engage with them more particularly in relation to Sonic Forces, which was the previous 3D Sonic game, which I thought was was got a little bit of a bad rap because I do think it had some good stuff. It had a good story and character stuff. The levels individually were often fun and had good design and good, um, you know, sort of gameplay. The problem is that that's all there was, and the levels were very short, very quick bites, and you would just go level, 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 and it was very exhausting because there was nothing to break it up and none of the individual levels were deep enough to sort of get into them. These are very similar to those levels. They haven't like fundamentally rethought them. These very much feel like Sonic Forces levels, but I do think put in this very different context of they're a thing that breaks up the other open world collectathon gameplay, they suddenly become much more engaging and fun to me because in an hour of play, maybe I spend 10, 15 minutes doing this in an hour of play, I'm not doing seven of these fucking levels, you know? Yes. Yeah, exactly. I'm 100% with you on that, that it is, it, it freshens up that concept, which worked for a couple of games, maybe, you know, particularly Sonic Generations did it really well. But Sonic Generations also did it well because it had a much more natural split between the 3D, 2D levels. Um, and so, like, it was able to build more variety naturally within its design anyways. 
Um, but this, breaking it up with you being able to do any number of different kinds of activities out in the open world, yeah, it means that when you come back to a cyber level, you're like fresh for it. And you're like, yeah, I'll do this. Like I'll spend 10 minutes running this level a couple of times to get the par and find all the red star coins and everything. Because I'm with you. I've been outside of a couple ones where I felt like the part time was like a little bit too much and I didn't care enough to go for it. Um, in general, I've been getting all the sub objectives on those levels um, and having a good time doing that. Another thing I really love about the game is I think it's got like a bunch of really fun boss fights. Like I think they've done a really good job of figuring out um, the, you've got like little bosses that exist or like mini bosses that exist in the open world um, that are all these like giant machines and each island has its own set. And I think they've done a very good job of thinking up creative bosses that look cool that play off of Sonic's like abilities really well. And you'll have bosses that are themed around grinding. You'll have bosses that are themed around like boosting on these long trails they leave behind them. Um, bosses themed around some of the different combat moves that you get. And all the bosses, like everything else in the game, they take like three minutes to kill if you know what you're doing. Um, so they're, none of them I have felt are particularly hard, but they all make you feel like Sonic. They make you feel like you're doing cool Sonic shit, fighting and blowing up some giant robot enemy and then you get the like weirdly like neon genesis evangelion-esque yes. big big boss fights that happen at the end of each island where you turn into supersonic uh which is i think a great idea that you turn into supersonic multiple times throughout the game to defeat those bosses as silly as it is that every time you go to a new island you get you have to lose your chaos emerald somehow um but you know it whatever that's a weird contrivance to be able to spread out the coolness of supersonic and then you just get your big crazy screamo rock action song playing as you beat the shit out of a weird like angel from eva basically type enemy um i've done two of those now because they, they happen at the end of each island and both of them have been really fun weird big spectacle fights there's a scene with the first one of those on the first island that is just pulled right out of Shin godzilla yes. where it like l l unleashes all the lasers on its back and the lasers go everywhere and i was like that's that's Shin Godzilla, <laughs> and, and yes, it is very Neon Genesis Evangelion. Also, they're both Hideaki Anno, like the designs. But like, yeah, there's tons of robots in the overworld, and they like it plays with scale in almost like a like. Um, why am I forgetting the name? Shadow of the, of the Colossus. Shadow of the Colossus in yeah. that kind of way where they're like big and hulking over you, and Sonic is little, but he can run on up them and do all these crazy things. And I did I did one today that was with grind rails, and I really loved that one because it was fairly simple i wouldn't necessarily call it hard but it was just cool and it was fun and it made use of the abilities in a neat way and you know each time i feel like it's got a good skill tree where the more i unlock each one feels like oh this is a meaningful addition to my arsenal this is not just like you have two extra points in your punch power or something like mm -hmm. that you know it's like very i think it's it's nailed down there well um yeah and it's just you're constantly running around the world getting little things that you can go use elsewhere or level up your health and stuff like that and it's just it's fun it's a it's a kind of open world ish platforming thing where everything you do is kind of in a constant feedback loop with everything else and it's all through the lens of of sonic and i feel like using the unique things about him as a character and about his gameplay and I do think, particularly in the open world sections, really understanding something we and lots of other people have said many times, that Sonic isn't about speed, it's about momentum. And the sense of momentum when you get going in this game is just really fucking cool. And I've never seen it done in 3D like this before. Yeah. And it's just like the openness of it gives you this sense of freedom that matches Sonic 
inherently as a character so perfectly. That's just a thing that no other Sonic game has ever done. Like, this feels like the first time in a long time that, like, and really the first time since Sonic Adventure 1, where they have really embraced what does what can 3D bring to Sonic rather than struggling to find ways to replicate what 2D Sonic was like, but it happened to be in 3D. This is just like not trying to be a 2D Sonic game in any way. Um, it is just assessing the character and the appeal of the character um, his ability set in the world he lives in and trying to execute on that in 3D regardless of the I think like the like the inheritance of the character or whatever, which I think like other 3D Sonic games have maybe been too concerned with. This is the this is the thing Mario got out of the fucking box yeah. with Mario 64 is that Mario's 3D games have never tried to replicate 2D Mario. Mario 64 doesn't look, feel, or act like Super Mario World one little fucking iota. It's its own thing. And it's got, like, he jumps and he's a plumber. And it's got some of the same kind of, like, slow, deliberate quality. It's identifiably Mario. But 3D Mario is a completely different thing from 2D Mario. And I think this does feel like that philosophy applied to Sonic in a way I really like. Yeah, you know, like, 3D Mario doesn't get a mushroom and become bigger which is like yes. one of the most fundamental Mario things in the world of 2D Mario. Like you can't imagine a 2D Mario game where you don't get a mushroom and that makes you bigger. It gives you like an extra hit point. Um, but 3D Mario never did that because I think they realized, eh, you don't need it for what they were doing for those games. And similar with this where it's like, you know, you you still have rings as your like life. Um, but if you have a bunch of rings and you get hit, you don't lose all of your rings. You lose some of your rings. And how many rings you have basically determines how many hits you can take. Um, and you know, we've played a lot of 3D Sonic games. This might not be the first game that has done that specific thing. I cannot remember. Um, but back in the day, certainly at least, all the 3D Sonic games always did the ring system exactly the way it existed in 2D, even though trying to pick up rings that you've dropped in 3D is a fucking pain in the ass. Um, and it's yes. like, I like in this game, <laughs> I just don't get, if I get hit, I don't care. Like, it's like, I don't even really try to bother to pick up the rings I dropped. Because they even give you an ability where you can just draw a circle on the ground and it'll pop up some rings. So if you can get a little distance from a boss or something, you can get some rings and go back into the fight. Like, there's just lots of little things like that where they have decided, we don't need to do this thing just because it's what Sonic games have typically done. We need to think about how do these systems work well for this game that we're making. Yeah, I agree. It's great. Uh, the music also just yes. kicks on holy amounts of ass. It's a fantastic soundtrack. From the very, like, slow more kind of new age music you get on the open worlds. The one in the sand island mm -hmm. is fucking great. I love listening to it. It's very haunting. Kind of reminds me of some of the stuff like in the Mystic Ruins in Sonic Adventure 1. Two, you've got your cool hard rock in the boss fights, your Crush 40 stuff. You've got really cool music that plays during some of the different like little levels. It's just, it's a killer soundtrack. Um, I know the full soundtrack is like coming out commercially in a couple weeks and I'm excited to be able to listen to it. Yeah, it, it is, uh, you know, Sonic games, even when Sonic, they're not good Sonic games, have always had really killer soundtracks, and this is true of this one. And it's got that, like, delightfully eclectic nature to it that you want Sonic games to have with their soundtracks. Um, because there's one thing I love is, like, a couple of those um, cyber levels have songs that feel so intentionally, I think, reminiscent of tracks from Sonic R, the racing game, um, where you have, like, the some of the vocal songs and stuff like that in there that are a little, like, kind of, like, Euro pop kind of thing. Um, it's just there's a lot of like different kinds of styles and touches that they put in through all the different kinds of music they have in the game. Yeah, it's it's very good. You should definitely give it a try if you are 
uh, a Sonic fan, if you like any kind of, if you just like want a new kind of platformer, because platformers in 3D aren't a thing that come out that often. This is, I think, fits that bill. Also fits sort of if you if you like sort of open worlds, but maybe more focused, limited open worlds. You know, this is not a game that is 70 hours long. This is probably a 20 to 30 hour game for 100 percenting it. And I think that's that's good. It is it is correctly scoped. I think it's it's a it's a banger. It's good. Yeah, I think yeah, I think especially if you have any love for Sonic in your heart, if you like, if you're like us and you really and you kind of grew up with Sonic Adventure and Sonic Adventure Two and really liked those games back in the day, like I think for anyone like that, this is a very easy game to recommend. How much more money do you think this would make if they had just called it Sonic Adventure Three? I mean, it's been selling actually quite well for a oh, okay. you know 3D Sonic game. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know how how easy it is to to pluck those nostalgic heart strings. Um, I don't know. I've just always thought that 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 must, unless they're complete idiots, that must be like a break glass in case of emergency thing at uh-huh. Sega of like just you know make Sonic Adventure three, and if it's not bad, you're gonna get some nostalgia bucks. <laughs> In your wallet, because yeah. those there's a whole generation of people who grew up with those. I mean, it you could very easily justify calling this Sonic Adventure three, because again, the story is very directly tied into the story of Sonic Adventure one. Like Chaos is in this game. They name drop T Call, um, the yes. other echidna from that game. Like it is, and so far it has not had any Sonic Adventure two stuff in it. You know, I don't know if Shadow pops up in this game or not. Um, but it is like it is weirdly involved in some of like the history of Sonic. Um, and specifically Sonic Adventure 1, although some of the other stuff as well. Like there is a, I don't know if you've seen it or not, it happens on the second island. They straight up show a screenshot from the beginning of Sonic Sonic the Hedgehog fucking 3 in this game as a memory that Knuckles has. And it's just, it's just that game. Uh, so it's I like, love it's, it. no, it's I haven't seen that bit. yet. That's it's great. It's very good. Uh, I hope they do some other stuff like that. I like the idea that it, Knuckles' memory, it's like, oh yeah, that's what like Angel Island looked like. <laughs> it looked like a weird 16-bit <laughs> thing. And me and Sonic were like little tiny 16-bit cartoon people. Um, I like to imagine that's just like literally canonically what everything was back then. And as time has moved on, they have just literally evolved and their world has evolved uh, with the game's technology. I think it makes sense. I think, you know, they live in a very weird world. Sometimes it has humans. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there's a moon. Sometimes the moon is blown up. You know, I have no idea what the actual continuity of Sonic is. I think Sonic has an ur continuity where yes. everything happens all at once. Yeah. I'm, I'm just waiting for, like, fucking, like, Princess Sally or some of the, like, cartoon and comic book characters to come <laughs> in and just be like... How does this any of this work? What the fuck? Or like the kid from Sonic X shows up one day. <laughs> Indeed. All right. Anything else to say about Sonic Frontiers? It's good. I'm excited to play more of it. Yeah, me too. Uh, why don't I go ahead and talk about Pokemon Violet? Uh, like I said, if you're playing Scarlet, just, you know, replace the red with purple. And this is the same game. Although I, I do think there's some bigger differences maybe near the end. Kind of in a like Team Magma, Team Aqua way from the uh, from the Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire days is how I would probably describe the split. But again, more of a skin thing than anything else. Um, so Pokemon Violet, you may have seen in the news for a couple reasons. One, uh, it's janky, to put it mildly. <laughs> It's got some technical issues. Uh, it doesn't perform particularly well, and it doesn't look particularly good. Uh, second, it's a g- ginormous, uh, humbling success of a game. It sold 10 million copies in three days. It's the biggest launch in Nintendo history. 
if you were worried, hey, they're releasing a lot of Pokemon games. Is that ever going to come back to bite? No, no. It seems like the the way Nintendo want, gets to print money is put out as many Pokemon games as possible, and there's apparently no limit on that. They will just keep selling Pokemon. Um, but to cut through all the noise, like I will say, when I saw the initial reviews, which were very like... You don't see reviews these days go that hard in on like technical issues all that often. Uh, and that's what these reviews were about. And I, I, I was like, I don't know if I'm actually going to get this game. And here's the thing. I've played every mainline Pokemon game. I haven't beat all of them. I never beat Black and White. And I never beat Sun and Moon. I thought Sun and Moon were terrible. So I never played those. Black and White I enjoyed. I just didn't. I, I remember what happened specifically is Black and White back in the day. They put out right before the 3DS came out, and then the 3DS mm -hmm. came out, and I fell off because I had other stuff to play. But anyway, um, so I've played all of them. In the Switch era, I've played all of them. The Switch era of Pokemon has been bizarrely busy. Like, let's quickly recap all the Switch era Pokemon games. First, there was Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee. I played Let's Go Eevee. I really liked that game. That's a good Pokemon game. Um, that was the one that is a remake, but with some of the Let's Go mechanics of the original Red and Blue. Then you had Pokemon Sword and Shield, Gen 8. Uh, you had the Sword and Shield DLC instead of a, like, Ultra Sword, Ultra Shield or something like that. Uh, you had Pokemon Brilliant Diamond, Shining Pearl. I played Brilliant Diamond, um, which is kind of a nostalgic throwback, a pretty simple remake of Diamond and Pearl. I liked that one quite a bit. Then there was earlier this year, Pokemon Legends Arceus, which was their sort of monster hunter Pokemon with Zelda Breath of the Wild graphics style. Um, is kind of how I would probably describe that one. And then this year you get Pokemon... <laughs> this year also you yes. get Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, uh, which is Gen 9, and this is the first of the mainline Pokemon games that is a true open-world game. Uh, here's the thing. People say that Pokemon has always sort of technically had an open world. It has always been a game where you go out into the world and you can walk through it. It's just... In the other games, there was a linear path and things would be closed off to you. You could, you know, when you had everything unlocked in red and blue, technically an open world. Uh, yeah. but this I mean, is it's, a true, it was an open like, world in the way that, like, JRPGs typically are. Where it's like, yes, yes it's an open world, but it is like an open yes. world where you're very much guided from one location to the other. This is an open world game with clear influences from recent open world hits, like Zelda Breath of the Wild, which is, every open world game is going to pull a little bit from that game at this point, you know, stuff like that. Um, and the way the game is sort of set up is that you start out, there's about an hour long intro or so where you do your basic intro Pokemon stuff. It is not nearly as tutorial heavy as some Pokemon games are. Like, they, they, there was a scene where someone said, let me go show you how to catch Pokemon. And I put my head in my hands and went, not, just please stop telling me how to catch Pokemon. And what they did instead is they opened me into a giant field and said, go catch Pokemon. And I caught like 30 Pokemon before I actually like then went to the first Pokemon Center. That was great. That was like the, my first sign that I might like this game. This is actually kind of cool. But anyway, you wind up going to this school, uh, which for me is the Uva Academy. Uh, it's I think it's Naranja Academy if you're playing Scarlet. And that's in the middle of the world is there's this big town called Mesagosa, and you're at that school. And then that school, it seems like they're actually pretty lazy as instructors because what they do immediately is send you out on an independent study where you just go explore the world uh, and try to find your own treasure. That to me reeks of the teacher did not come up with a syllabus in time. And so you are just going to go figure it out for yourself and they're going to stay behind at the school and get drunk. I don't know. Um, I don't think I ever had a teacher do that, but I don't live in the world of Pokemon. And so what actually happens is that you, with the characters you sort of meet at the beginning of the game, you break off into three different quest paths. And there is the sort of most traditional Pokemon path, which is what they call Victory. 
Victory Road, which is where you go and get all eight gym badges and then challenge the Pokemon League. And so that's eight objectives and then the Pokemon League. There is the Team Star path, which is sort of like your, your Team Rocket, your enemy team thing. And there are five bases you have to go attack and beat them. And then there is, you have a buddy uh, named Arvin who is looking for Titan Pokemon who eat this special substance called the Herba Mystica, which really sounds like Pokemon doing drugs. And mm -hmm. I kind of like the idea of that, that we're going and catching some Pokemon marijuana. And there are five of those objectives. So you start out the game with uh, 18 sort of objectives on the map. You can go do them in any order. The game does have like sort of set levels for different areas of the game. So each gym leader has a certain like level of Pokemon, different areas of the world. Like you'll have level 10 Pokemon here, 30 Pokemon here, 50 Pokemon here. I've seen some consternation about that, but I actually think that was the right call for this game because the thing about Pokemon is that you, the player, don't have a level. Your Pokemon have a level. And so... For me, what I've found, this game is very, um, like, you have your access to your boxes at any time. You can catch lots and lots of different Pokemon. And so I had lots of Pokemon I was training up. And so I actually found it very nice that, like, there are predictable areas with different level Pokemon. Because maybe you do double back and wind up going to an easier area. Well, you just pull out different Pokemon from your boxes and use those. If you're, if, if you're playing it like an old Pokemon game and you're leveling up, like, just your starter and maybe one other Pokemon then no, this isn't going to be for you. But I think Pokemon has evolved past that point, thankfully, because that was a flaw, I think, of the older Pokemon games. So anyway, you have all of that, and you go and kind of make your own adventure going through the world. And I have to admit, I know this game has its issues. Trust me, I know this game has its, its, its issues. I love this game. I love this game head over heels. It's the most I've enjoyed Pokemon in forever. Uh, and I've generally enjoyed the Switch-era Pokemon games because they've been much more adventurous like the ds 3ds era with the exception of x and y which i think were pretty good we're pretty much stuck in the pokemon rut and i think since then like you've had you know let's go introducing those mechanics and sword and shield finally getting rid of random encounters and and doing um like the big wild area and you had um uh pokemon legends arceus doing its thing with much more of the monster hunter kind of uh, approach to pokemon and this is also like a big switch up for the series. It feels different, but it feels like kind of we were talking with Sonic Frontiers, like, oh, I'm finally kind of playing as Sonic and feeling that, you know, fantasy. This to me feels like kind of the promise of early Pokemon more or less realized where you start out and you go explore the world and you catch Pokemon and you can catch a shit ton of Pokemon in this game and you train them and you battle them and you go have adventures and you kind of make your own adventures. And I like all of that. I think it's... I think the basic bones of the game are incredibly solid. I think the world is well designed. I think the general like leveling and scaling of everything is well optimized. It is so generous with how many Pokemon are on the map. And if you lived through the trenches of like the DS days where, oh my god, I've been playing black and white for five hours and I've seen that ice cream cone Pokemon 700 times. When will I see a new Pokemon? You know, I beat this game with 250 Pokedex entries recorded. That's nuts. If you played old Pokemon games, like that is fucking nuts that you would be able to get that many. It actually feels much more like one of the Digimon story games in terms of how many creatures there they are. And because of the, and I know some people don't like the experience share because they're like, no, you got to level up one Pokemon at a time and that's it. And to them I say, Pokemon Red and Blue are sitting right there for you on an emulator or an old game cart. You can play them anytime you want. Uh, for me, I enjoy leveling up a bunch of Pokemon and playing. And because you can level up so many 
and your boxes are right there. It's very easy to switch out your team and level and go around and do that. And there's lots of different things to do in the world using your Pokemon. Um, I find myself like using like there's basically a full box I have of Pokemon I've been cycling through and I've been way more engaged with the type system and the different type matchups and stuff like that. Like I have never learned as much about the meta of Pokemon because Pokemon games are generally very easy and you don't need to know anything about the meta of Pokemon to get through it. I've actually had to learn some. These are much more challenging Pokemon games than any of the other recent games in the series. Like they had so given up on the pretense of challenging the player by the time of Sword and Shield that when Brilliant Diamond came out, which is not a hard game, but it's like it still has the pretense of challenge in it. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this game actually makes you work once in a while. Um, Violet, depending on how you play it, makes you work quite a bit because there's lots of challenging things in it. And because nothing is closed off to you, if you want to go challenge a gym that's 10 levels above your best Pokemon... You can go do that. You can figure it out. You can have adventures. And if you want to cross this river and there's a level, I saw like a gold duck over there and it was level 55. My Pokemon were level 35. I figured it out and I caught that fucking gold duck. And the game did not tell me, no, you can't go catch that gold duck. You can just do that. And I think that's really cool. I like that a lot. And so it has all of that. And then on top of that, I just really like the vibes of this game, for lack of a better term. I think it's one of the best written Pokemon games. The characters are extremely endearing. It's it's still within this sort of vein of Pokemon. It doesn't suddenly get into like very deep philosophical issues. I don't know why you would want that from a Pokemon game necessarily. But I think in the general vein of Game Freak, usually has pretty charming, fun, light character writing. I think this has that in spades. But also just goes a notch deeper here and there. Like the Team Star plot is surprisingly moving. Because what it's actually about is these students who are truants from the academy who have left and made their own team because of bullying issues back at the academy. But in so doing, they've become really good friends and you kind of learn about their camaraderie. And they're not really villains or anything like that. And there's some surprisingly moving stuff there. And in the story with Arvin and the Titan Pokemon, it's all about he has this Pokemon Mabostiff, which is this big like uh, dog Pokemon who's really sick and like... It's the closest they've ever come to, like, what would happen if your Pokemon, who is effectively your pet, is dying. And he's trying to find the Herba Mystica to heal his Mabostiff. And so all the stuff that happens there is really sweet and endearing. Um, the Pokemon you ride around on in the game, because you get your legendary first thing in this game, because it is your mount and it's what you ride around. And so my mount is uh, Miraidon. Um, if you're wondering, hey, is that the Mirai as in future? Is the Japanese word future? Yes, it is. And that is a hint about the end of the game. Um, Miraidon is, uh, you know, sort of your main buddy in the game. You don't battle with him until near the end. He's just your mount and he follows you around. Uh, but like in cutscenes, he's like very endearing and cute and kind of like your pet and stuff like that. And then the gym leaders, you know, they're very colorful characters and there's, if there's little challenges you have to do with each gym leader to like be able to challenge them. And there's fun little mini games that they come up with there. And so the world just kind of feels alive and I like the characters and there's some cool story beats. The end of this game is batshit fucking crazy. Like this is the first Pokemon game that has a true JRPG ass ending where the end of the game is you go beneath the world and look at the world underneath the world you were in and you go down to the depths and you fight a big boss who's like on a tower above you and crazy shit happens and there's really like eerie music and stuff. It's a very JRPG ass ending and I love it. It's weirdly dark too for Pokemon. Like there's some cool stuff that goes on in it. Um, and so like it's striking. It's a good game. I think the fundamentals are all there. It is the Pokemon game 
I've kind of always wanted. I've I really was unable to put it down throughout Thanksgiving. That's pretty much my entire Thanksgiving break was playing Pokemon religiously. Uh, I should also say the music in this game is phenomenal. It's my favorite soundtrack of this year. It does some really slick stuff like having, when you're in a certain zone of the game, the same sort of melody will play in different versions of the track. So if you're walking, you have one version of it. If you're riding Miraiden, you have sort of a higher tempo version of it. And then if you get in a battle with a wild Pokemon, you have kind of the highest energy version of it. And it just seamlessly goes between those tracks, sort of like how the modern Fire Emblem games go from sort of the battle theme. And then if you go in and you attack another unit, you get the like higher intensity version of it. They do stuff like that. And all of the music is great. It has some stuff in this, some like bass line stuff in this game that is honestly reminiscent of like persona 5 of like that is some good fucking bass in there and i am really enjoying that the music in the final very jrpg esque area is really cool and like weird um and has all this weird instrumentation and i love it it's just uh all of that is really cool um i'm enjoying it it's really fun to play all that being said Yes, it is a technically messy game. The way I think I've described it to other people who have asked me, this feels like you are playing an in-development build mm -hmm. of a really great Pokemon game. And, you know, I've been following games a long time. I've seen in, like, you know, images and leaked videos and stuff what, like, sort of in-development builds of games look like. Where, oh, before they finish the textures and before they finish some of the performance stuff, games often look really rough and that's okay because they're not released yet right yeah you know god of war god of war ragnarok beautiful game at some point in its development everything was just kind of a polygon with no texture on it right and the developers had to use their imaginations to sort of <laughs> see what it would be in the end but they got to finish the game and get there to me i think the biggest issue with pokemon scarlet and violet is it clearly was unfinished yeah i think all the fundamentals are there i think all the like planning and pre-production and all that stuff they were clearly, like, they did really good work there. I think all of the fundamentals of the game are in place. I think that last six months to a year of development that would be finishing up the art, you know, implementing everything into the game, making it perform really well. I've seen some headlines going, the Switch can't handle this game. That's utter bullshit. Yeah. The Switch has had problems with some games, but, like, the Switch can run Witcher 3 well. This is not anywhere near as technically complex as that. It's just not optimized. That's the issue. And so you have weird things like characters moving at three or four, and this is not an exaggeration because Digital Foundry uh -huh. did the analysis, like three or four frames per second in the background. You have pop-in absolutely everywhere, all of that kind of stuff. It is definitely visually rough, and it looks like a game that is just, they plopped it out from an in-development build, and you're playing it. If, if like you were handed this early and were playing it, you'd be like, oh, this is pretty cool, but you know they're going to keep working on this for about a year, right? Sadly, no, it, it got pushed out way too early. And so it is very clearly a game that I think was left unfinished. I will say the ways it is left unfinished are mostly aesthetic, not ways that actually impact the playing of the game. I have had no playability issues with this game. I have had one crash in the 50 hours I've been playing it. Switch games crash sometimes. I, I know some people had more. I can't speak to that. But that did not impact my progress or anything because the autosave system is pretty robust. I was never blocked off from doing anything. Frame rate issues are annoying, but they don't really matter in a Pokemon game. There's no, this is a game where you're going through menus and walking around the world. Um, that is not to say to excuse all of it. I'm just telling you, how can I enjoy it with all these issues? 
To me, this is a different beast than like Cyberpunk 2077. Because I think something people forget about Cyberpunk is that, one, the issues with that game were truly game-breaking. Like it made the game truly impossible to actually like play and complete things and move through the game on, I was playing it on Xbox Series X and it just was unplayable. But it, when you could play it, it was also a bad game. They did not get the fundamentals down. There was nothing of real interest in that game. The gameplay was bad. There was not much there. I will say, I think this is a very good game that was technically unfinished and unpolished. Um, but if it interests you, if you like Pokemon, I think it is worth playing. And the other thing I will say is that if you primarily play your Switch or you're willing to primarily play your Switch handheld... All of those issues do not really bother me in handheld mode. I think it looks like a slightly nicer 3DS game. I've played a lot of I've but I and that yeah. sucks. I get that. But I have played every Pokemon game handheld. All of the new ones on Switch, I barely ever play the Pokemon games. I, I my Switch generally actually these days I almost always play handheld. But uh Pokemon games in particular, you know, I here's my thesis. I don't think Game Freak has ever actually made a console Pokemon game. I think all the Switch Pokemon games are still handheld games. That happen to be on the Switch and you can happen to put them on your TV. They've never felt to me like they were designed with that in mind. That extends to this game. This game feels very natural and fine handheld. I did put it on my TV for some parts and I went, oh god, that unfinished texture strikes me a lot more on my 55-inch uh -huh. 4K TV than it does on my 720p OLED Switch where it looks fine. Uh, so if you're playing it handheld, I don't think it's a huge bother. If you only ever play your games on the TV, I think it will bother you more. Um, you know, that is a personal thing. So it is a complicated game to talk about because of the unfinished nature of it. I wish the clearly talented people at Game Freak had had the time to finish their vision for this game. Because I actually think, as ugly as parts of it are, the basics of how it could look good are very clear to me. There are parts where the art was finished, and there are scenes where, like, oh, this was polished, and I think the art is really nice. And you can just tell if they had had time to implement and finish all of this and polish it, I think it could be more promising. And clearly, Game Freak has a problem of underfunding these games and pushing them out too fast, and they have to fucking fix that. Absolutely. But I am still enjoying Violet a lot. It is one of my favorite games of the year. I think it's the best Pokemon uh, mainline game since Gen 2. I think it's really, really good. And I think it's a bummer that we're playing an in-development build of it. But them's the breaks. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating for me as the, obviously he's not playing the game, but has seen a decent amount of video of it, um, watching like VTubers play it and stuff. Because yes, it is a thing where it's like, I can tell a lot of like, you know, things that I don't like about Pokemon games or like things that I liked about the original Pokemon games. But then, as you were saying, with like Legends Arceus being the second Pokemon game, that was always one of my main problems of why I fell off like halfway through playing the Gen 3 games and never really came back to it as a franchise because I just got bored with that thing because I played it. Um, and this seems like it's like, okay, no, you're actually breaking open that structure. You're thinking about it in a more fresh way. Things like, you know, incentivizing or building easy structures by which you can level up lots and lots of Pokemon um, has always been a big problem. And all of those things are really cool. But it is like when you look at the game, there's something as like just an observer of it that I find I, it like triggers my secondhand embarrassment in a weird way. Like, like I'm watching like a cringe humor in the office. There's something <laughs> about like 
it's it like truly looks like a game that is unfinished not just like oh it's got bugs and stuff or it's got some glitches it's like it just looks like a game that they that literally they didn't realize was going to come out when it came out is what it looks like they thought they were going to get six more months and so they didn't bother to try to sort of you know cut whatever corners you know because like cyberpunk 2077 like on the outside if you looked at like clips of that game seemed mostly fine as long as you weren't seeing like a clip that had a specific bug because i think they figured out all the corners they needed to sort of crunch or whatever to like make it look somewhat like a finished product um but it was only if you actually experienced that game that then you saw oh no 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 like this is has huge massive technical issues and you know game breaking glitches and quests that don't finish and all that kind of stuff whereas this just feels like they thought oh yeah we're going to get 6 more months to finish all this and implement this and do that and that um and they've got the game in like a fully playable state and solved all like the major game breaking issues uh and then the game just got put out and they're like what <laughs> this is what it looks yes. like um because watching it on like youtube videos on tv it is like it is like a frustratingly ugly looking game not because the art design is bad but because like you're getting a camera that is just shoved up the ass of the most in 64 ass looking texture you have seen in the 21st goddamn century. Like there's so many textures that just look like they haven't loaded or they're basically unfinished. You have characters that are animating at half or less than half frame rate, literally feet away from your main character. Like it is it is the most just like, how could this game have been put out in the state thing I've seen, you know, since Cyberpunk 2077, but it's like the worst I've seen something like this from a first party developer in fucking forever like the last time i feel like there was something even kind of like this from a first party developer was like recore uh on the xbox one or like drive club for the ps4 both like early exclusives for those consoles that had major issues when they were released um and there's just something really frustrating and kind of weirdly embarrassing about looking at this game because of like how all those things are unfinished um and like lots of weird glitches that aren't like game breaking glitches but are just like oh this pokemon just sort of fell through the world or this animation just completely bugged um and it's funny to watch in a like ha 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 it's kind of funny kind of way but it is like also this is one of the like most successful entertainment franchises in the history of humanity this game sold 10 million copies and there's something deeply embarrassing about that to me that that it is also so like starkly unfinished there's something frustrating about the idea that you could have this much success and of course the mechanisms of capitalism mean that that doesn't allow you to get like a nicely premium product this doesn't seem like a premium product this seems like a really cheap product designed well um in its fundamentals but very cheap in the way that it was put out onto the market and that fucking sucks it does suck and it, it it's too bad because I can get past all of those issues just fine in my playing of it. It has not bothered me that much. But I understand some and I'm not and when I say that, if you can't get past it, I'm not blaming you for that, whoever you are listener, right? I do understand that. Um, and it does suck because I guess my tinfoil hat conspiracy here is did this like swap places with Breath of the Wild 2? Is that what happened? Is like did the Nintendo release calendar because at some point, they were saying Breath of the Wild 2 was this year. Then it came out in... Now it's coming out in May. Was there some version of this where like they thought they had six more months with Scarlet and Violet? Because the announcement of these games was a huge surprise. Do you remember mm, yeah. when this got announced at one of the Nintendo Directs? And it's like, what do you mean you're doing another Pokemon? Because 
one year ago was Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. Less than one year ago was Legends Arceus, which was this January. And then a few months after that, we get an announcement for this. This is the third major Pokemon game in 12 months. Yeah. And now one of those was developed by Ilka. And I do think it speaks volumes that I think of all the Pokemon games on the Switch, the most polished one is but far and away Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl. Like that is the most solid finished one. And that's because one, it's a remake. And two, Ilka separate studio got to do all the work on that and did not have whatever the Game Freak institutional crunch is. It's kind of like, I think Game Freak just must have some fucking institutional stuff they have to figure out, kind of like 343 with Halo or something, where there's something broken in their production pipeline and just the business demands of too many goddamn Pokemon games. Like, I understand you want the money as soon as possible. Nintendo and Game Freak could have delayed this game one year, and sold just as many copies in mm. 2023, and I think it would have been the most acclaimed Pokemon game in decades. You know, like, I think people would have seen past the issues and and really embraced this game, because... And, and you do see that. The Pokemon c- community does in, agree with a lot of what I'm saying, I yeah. think, about the game. There is, I think, a lot of people who are enjoying it the way I'm enjoying it, but it does have these issues, and it does look cheap. Here's some of my favorite issues with the game. One, uh, Miraiden, and I assume this is true of the other dude in Pokemon Scarlet. When you are riding him around, he has a couple different things. You know, you ride him around and you can boost, but you can also jump and you can climb walls and stuff. Jumping on Miraiden is the funniest goddamn thing in the world to mm-hmm. me. Because have you ever played a goat simulator, Sean? Yes. It's like a... Uh-huh. Yes. And you know how in Goat Simulator, you can make the goat jump and like do crazy high jumps. And the joke is that the goat has no weight and there's just no physics engine on the goat. The goat just moves like without gravity. That's how Miraiden jumps. That's how Miraiden moves. And it's so funny to have this like first party Nintendo Pokemon game I paid $60 for. And the main movement in the game feels like it's out of Goat Simulator, which was a joke game. I kind of I kind of love it and it's also a sign of this was unfinished. Yeah, I mean also you can um go up basically any sloped surface in that game yes. if you just go backwards <laughs> on your weird mount pokemon. Um my favorite You glitch... do eventually unlock an ability to just climb, so it's not like those surfaces were meant to be closed off to you forever, but it's a, they they lead to later game areas. Yeah, so and you could just yeah. sort of like awkwardly it like reminds me of um in the classically horrible game Big Rigs Racing, where if you move backwards yes. in that game, it has no <laughs> speed limit. It's almost something like that where they didn't think about ah oh, shit, if you go backwards, we didn't like press this switch that makes it <laughs> so it's like you can't go up a surface of a certain incline. Um, also, I do not, I'm, from what I understand, this doesn't actually work in multiplayer, so it is not, like, as disastrous as it could be, but in single player, um, for your, like, one-hit kill moves that, you know, there are certain kinds of moves in Pokemon that can get a one-hit kill but have a low chance of hitting, um, like, the way that your chance of hitting operates is partially based on a seed, um, and so it should be a, it should be a randomly generated seed that then determines whether or not you're going to hit this thing, um, that then the probability will change depending on the order of moves that happen like the way that seeds work um but this game doesn't randomly generate a seed it has one seed meaning that you can if you figure it out guarantee by doing a certain order of moves that that one hit kill is going to hit 100 of the time i did not um, know this yeah again this only works in single player from what i understand but people can replicate just like oh yeah you could just kill things in one hit with your like horn drill or whatever the fuck the move is you know 
Um, so there are, like, that's obviously much more obscure. That's not a thing you're likely to stumble upon, but it does, like, point to the unfinished nature that that is a thing that they probably already knew and let ship as a bug because it's not that important and hard to sort of figure out. But it is a pretty fundamental issue with the way that that whole system works. Yeah, it's weird. The To me, the biggest technical flaw in the game is the battles themselves, mm -hmm. which work fine other than, I did not know about that bug, for instance. But they have, uh, from past generations of Pokemon, they have made a change where instead of you start a battle and you go to sort of a bespoke battle screen that is sort of this highly produced multiple camera angles on the Pokemon... Which, by the time of, like, the Sword and Shield battle screen was actually very nice. It looked good. The Pokemon animated well. It had a lot of camera angles. Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl just took that system identically. And it looked good in those as well. This uses a different system where everything happens on the overworld where you are. And so the Pokemon are in their spots and, like, the UI lays over it. It's completely broken, though. Mm -hmm. Like, the camera goes fucking nuts. It often, you will start a battle and neither Pokemon will be on screen because the camera is in the space in between them and you usually have to physically adjust the camera to get it into a position where you can see both of them if you want to see both of them. This system was in Pokemon Legends Arceus and it worked, I think, very well there um, because one, it just worked when you started the match, but you could move the camera around. The benefit of that is you can see either Pokemon however you want instead of always looking like at the back of your Growlithe, you can move around and see its front, right? But in uh, Arceus, you could also, your trainer was on screen and you could run them around and do stuff during the battle. Um, that was a much more sophisticated version of this. This one's just kind of busted. Uh, it's trying to account for things like the relative scales of the different Pokemon. But what that often means is that small Pokemon just become almost invisible. And big Pokemon, the camera, no matter how you move it, just can't see all of them. Like early in, I got a Gyarados pretty early in this game, which I did nickname Nishiki. After uh, Subaru. Uh, so some VTuber stuff there, Sean. Uh, I should talk about my nicknames because I have some pretty good nicknames in this Pokemon game. Um, but anyway, uh, and I had a Gyarados at a time in the game where I was mostly encountering little tiny Pokemon. And it was hilarious how the camera would just bug the fuck out whenever you tried to see that. And so, and then also just the Pokemon, like, there are many fewer animations on the Pokemon than there were in Sword and Shield or Brilliant Diamond. The attack animations are much more limited. It's just like, that is clearly like, on their like flow chart of like development, like the battle system, we will polish that here. And then the game got put out right before they did that yeah. is what it feels like, you know? Uh, and it's too bad because I've seen it work in Arceus and it looked good there. But, you know, like I'll, I'll say Pokemon Legends Arceus came out earlier this year. I think that is the nicest looking Pokemon game that has ever come out. It's a very graphically like nice, solid game. I think it's got a really cool art style. It's doing kind of the cell shading thing like... Uh, Breath of the Wild, and it's set in sort of the this like ancient Japan sort of zone. So it's got some cool artwork there. And I think it's generally a very nice looking game. I didn't like that game that much. I played 20 hours of it. It's the only one of the Switch Pokemon games I did not roll credits on. And that's because, like, as a game, it's got this sort of base set of mechanics that I think was very good for going around and exploring and catching Pokemon but there wasn't much to do other than catching the Pokemon. There were some battles you could do, but there was no gym system. There were, weren't a lot of other trainers. There's no, you know, victory tower, battle tower, anything like that. Um, and the story was the worst writing I've ever seen in a Pokemon game. Just the absolute most bland B-team shit. Like none of the usual, like at least sort of like baseline charm you get. And so that game just didn't carry me through. 
Pokemon Violet is in a much rougher state. I like it quite a bit more than Legends Arceus. And and that's the weird dichotomy of, of this Pokemon game for me. Yeah. And, and again, as someone who has not played it, but only seen video of it, and obviously mostly seen video on a nice monitor or on a TV, I have to disagree with saying that Pokemon Legends Arceus is a nice-looking game. I think that game is very ugly also. I think both I these games look I said nicest really of the modern Pokemon okay. games. I okay. don't think it's... Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah. So with that qualifier... I also wouldn't agree with that, but uh, 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 Let's Go or the Shining Pearl remake, I think, are... Um, those look better. good, but they're going for a completely different aesthetic. Yeah. They're going for, like, a sort of chibi little, like, overhead 3D aesthetic, like, almost like the Link's Awakening remake or something. Um, yeah, I think, like, because I played... Again, I don't know if I ever even docked Arceus once. Like, I think on my OLED Switch, it looked nice and totally fine in that form. But again, I just, I still, and clearly Game Freak still thinks of these games as handheld games. And I don't know, they're going to, that's the thing though. When, when in the, this time period would they have had the time to sit down and redesign Pokemon as a console game? Because like, they're clearly still using their 3DS tech. Mm-hmm. Because what would, they've made fucking five of these. What's the, they need to slow the hell down and yeah. take a couple of years off. Because that's what you would need. You need to build a new engine. You need to start from scratch in able, to be able to do all of this stuff. Um, and so because there was never that break, I've, I've always had a little tinfoil hat conspiracy that I think Sword and Shield started their lives as 3DS games. And I think Game Freak was surprised by the success of the Switch. I mean, we know Nintendo was too, a little bit. Yeah. Because that, remember the first year of the Switch, there were still a good number of 3DS releases because they were hedging their bets in case this was Wii U 2.0. And then the Switch was a runaway success. And so I've always thought, I think Game Freak didn't necessarily believe that they would be moving to the Switch as fast as they did. That's why our first game there was Let's Go, Pikachu and Eevee. And from that point on, it's felt like they are taking 3DS games and bolting them into the Switch structure with duct tape and spit. And they just, I don't care how much money in the world you have, they need to slow the hell down. There's no, yeah. there's, there's no amount of money can make up for time, you know? But the games are going to sell absurd yes. amounts of copies regardless. So unfortunately, they will, I think... Pokemon will languish as the like most capitalist video game ever made, as as is warranted based on the whole concept of the franchise, the notion that they sell two different versions of the game so that you can trade Pokemon with your friends. It is it is like in many ways it is like capitalism incarnate is kind of what Pokemon is as a video game. It's either that or Stardew Valley is. <laughs> no, but I you know I am enjoying it. Speaking of the trading, Sean, here's just Jonathan being an old man for a second. Uh huh. I've always uh, done my trading in these games with my brother Thomas, because we usually get these games at the same time. Thomas, scared off by the technical performance, which, again, I understand 100%, did not buy Pokemon Scarlet when I bought Pokemon Violet. So I didn't have anyone I knew playing this to trade with. And I had, like, I wanted to evolve my Scyther into Caesar, and I wanted to do a couple other things. And I wanted to, like, exchange for the other starters. And I was like, man, who can I talk to to do this? And then I kind of looked on, I'm like... Oh, there's Discord servers people have made. I don't use Discord that much. So, and then I went onto this like popular Discord server and I said, hey, I've got some extra Quaxleys. Anybody want to give me a Fua Coco and a Grass Cat? And they're like, sure. And within like 10 minutes, I had like done 10 Pokemon trades and done all this business. And I was like, man, the world has changed. When I was a kid, you had a Pokemon game, you had to know other friends and you had to go to their house and you had to get a link cable. You had to get your parents to buy you a fucking link cable and you had to link your cartridges together and you had to trade physically and sometimes there would be fights because someone wouldn't give a Pokemon back. 
It was crazy. It's much easier now. You kids don't know how well you have it. Yeah, now you don't even need to have friends. Um, I know. That's the Pokemon, like, even even that has been stripped out of Pokemon in, in the quest for capitalism. <laughs> so now you don't even need friends. You don't, it's, it's, that's not even the point anymore. Um, you just need that's to have some, fault. some faceless stranger out there in the world that you can fucking trade your duck one. So you did the duck? That's the starter you picked? Yeah, Quaxley. That's the worst I like Quaxley. How what do you, you pick, mean? How could you pick the duck one? Quaxley looks, looks, like, looks like Subaru, the VTuber. She's, it's no, awesome. Even, even Subaru understood that Hogator or whatever. I, I, I know all the Japanese ones for this one. Because I've only yes. fucking seen uh, whatever. Pue Coco is clearly the best one. Unless you're looking at his evolutions. In which case, his third evolution is fucking a nightmare. Um, I like yes. the cat. The cat one probably is the best one if you're looking for the evolutions. The cat one is the best one overall. The all three versions of it look very good. My fully leveled up cat one. Uh, I don't know any of their names because I've been using nicknames and I've been having a lot of fun. I just named her Catwoman because her full evolution, she has like a mask on yes. and everything. And literally looks like Catwoman and Poison Ivy had a baby basically is what she looks like. Um, yeah, I've been having fun with all of my nicknames. I named my Quaxley Dewey from Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Dewey is the blue one, so there you go. I named my Fuakoko Lyle because he becomes a crocodile, and he looks like a scary crocodile, and I thought it would be funny to name him Lyle. Um, I think I've had some pretty clever ones. My favorite one is there are special regional versions of Taurus in this game, the like the big bull Pokemon. Mm-hmm. I've always loved that Pokemon. In this one, it's like all black, and it's a fighting type. It's really cool. But I, I think I came up with a pretty good name, Sean. And the name for my Taurus, you might turn off the podcast after I say this, so I'm scared. Was a Shar Aznabul, B U L L. And you said that this Pokemon is entirely like black. It's not even like red with gold trimmer. No, but he's a bull, so I thought it would be funny. Shar Aznabul. That's terrible. Like it's it's that it resembles <laughs> nothing about Shar. Um, you just took a syllable that happened to exist in Shar's name. It's just no. I can't approve of it. The best new Pokemon. Sorry, in the I did game, my. Oh, sorry, go ahead. The best new Pokemon in the game clearly is the new Diglett thing. The Wiglet, I think is it's called. It's like the big <laughs> white pasty one. Um, because that is the funniest glitch is the guy. This is because the battle system is completely fucking broken. Um, where the Pokeball landed between the tra- other trainers like feet or whatever. And so it popped out. Um, it like bends forward and it clipped through the <laughs> trainer. It was a male trainer and it just looked like a big pasty dick. Uh, and it, it's a very <laughs> funny clip. My other favorite nickname scheme I did is uh, I named my character Camille like the character in Zeta Gundam. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I was very surprised when he just loses his mind at the end of the game. It's pretty crazy. Um, I named him Camille and then I did get all of the Eevee evolutions of which there are very many at this point. There's all the initial ones and then there's the ones they added like the Psychic Eevee and the uh, Dark Eevee and the Fairy Eevee. And I have all of those and I named all of them after different Gundam characters. Uh, and that was actually pretty fun uh, to have like a team of all the Eevees and they're named like Amuro and Uso. Uso I made Jolteon. Uh, my favorite one is I did name my fairy Eevee. I forget its actual name, but I named it Suleta. And it actually does kind of remind me of Suleta Mercury. It has very Suleta energy. And so I that she's one of my mains. She's a very powerful Pokemon. So That's good. I, I'll, I'll yeah. prove that. Yeah. Should we go ahead and uh, move on from Pokemon to a game that is uh, a little little bit more technically polished yes let's talk about the least technically polished game in recent memory and move on to the most technically polished game (laughs) in recent memory uh god of war ragnarok yes so we have both finished uh the main plot of the game you i believe have like 100 percented this thing yeah i i I have platinumed it 
Okay. Uh, I have not, and I don't know quite when I will. So just so everyone knows, I went out of town uh, back to Colorado with my family for a week. And I was not going to, like, lug my PS5 with me and try to find a TV to hook it up to there and all that stuff. So I, it was a couple days before I was set to leave. I had been playing the game pretty thoroughly, but I was clearly getting close to the end. And I had two options. It was either just play what I can and then go on break for a week and a half and then come back to it. Or rush through the story and finish that. And I, I think I made the right call because I think I would have been very on edge if I had just left, like... Hey, Atreus is hanging out with Odin, and now I'm going to go on vacation for a week. I needed to... This is such a page-turner of a game. Mm -hmm. I needed to see how it ended. So I did kind of rush through the second half and just do sort of the main story stuff. So there's a lot of stuff like in Vanaheim that I haven't done yet, like the big area that opens up there. I have not really touched much yet. Uh, I did last night go back in and do the sort of extra ending you get at the end um, mm. that is an extra scene. Yeah, I, the funeral. We'll spoil stuff in a second here. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you get all of that. And I, I did do that just so I could say I've seen all the main story stuff in the game. Um, I don't know when I'll go back and like platinum everything. I'm kind of thinking I would like to just start fresh so I can kind of like play the game through almost like in extended mode and just see all the side stuff. So maybe when they add... New Game Plus is not in yet, but it wasn't in the first game at launch either. They added that a couple months later. So yeah. maybe when they do that, I'll, I'll play it that way. But um, yeah, so I've played a lot of the game. I've played like 30 hours of the game. I've done a lot of the side stuff. I just haven't done everything. Um, but yeah, God of War Ragnarok is a masterpiece. Yeah, it, it's a it's a great game. And it's one that like, in some ways, it almost kind of sneaks up on you. Um, I think that's yes. kind of like the effect we had when we talked about it last time of where we were both like, because we were, I was a little bit further than you. I think the last time I talked about it was when you're doing some of the stuff with Freya in Vanaheim, and you had not quite gotten there yet, but you're pretty close to that. Um, I think both of us were like right on the edge of where the game like is like kind of building up, kind of setting up all of its pieces. And I think past that point, um, it's specifically it's this is like a big spoiler. It's when Atreus goes to Asgard, right? Like that section. Yes which is somewhere around the midpoint of the game, that is to me where the game kind of really snaps into full gear because it has set up all of its different pieces. And now it's like, you know, and now it, like, it really distinguishes itself at that point from God of War 2018 fully. And like it shows this is a very different kind of story. It's a different approach to storytelling. That's where it starts introducing its most radically different gameplay elements, um, particularly for Kratos. And then at, from that kind of midpoint to the end, is just like as good as anything from that first game or first game, the God of War 2018, but relative to like, now you have all those expectations built up. And I think it like, it satisfies all the expectations you have. I think it like surprises you in really um, compelling ways. And it just lands so perfectly at the end with one of my favorite video game endings in recent memory. I think it just has a, an absolute incredible gut punch of an ending. Um, that yeah, it I I would agree it is a masterpiece. Like it's just a, it it is an amazing. Even though we both played on the PS5, it feels like the most appropriate, amazing like swan song for the PS4 possible. Um, because it is yes. at its core a PS4 game, and it feels like a, a cap on that generation of exclusives from Sony, where this feels like it's like the epitome of what that style of exclusive was doing on that console. Yeah, I think if you kind of like adjust the boundaries of this generation to be The Last of Us as the final PS3 game, but really is kind of the first PS4 game, 
and then you say this as the last PS4 game, but it's also kind of a PS5 game, this yeah. feels like the right capper to that decade of video games. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know what game I would compare this to? The closest comparison I can think of is Gravity Rush 2. Yes. Um, also a PlayStation exclusive, also a masterpiece. And that's the only other sequel I know of that is kind of like this one in that it completely eschews doing a longer franchise. Like this is, there is not going to be God of War 3 in this trilogy. This is a very clear definitive ending to this Norse saga, whatever we want to call it. And Gravity Rush 2 was the same way where it just left everything on the field. It went totally for broke. It had one sequel and that one sequel did everything that there was left to do with what that first game laid out. Gravity Rush 2, we talked about at the time as like, it's actually Gravity Rush like 2, 3, and 4 all in one. Its scope is just huge, but that also means it's very dense. Like it's a big game, but it's utterly free of filler because it has to, it's not just doing like sort of one regular sequel, it's doing sort of the rest of the story. And Gravity Rush 2, like God of War Ragnarok, starts out as a very straightforward sequel where it's basically the same game with new story and locations. And then it balloons out from there with this story that gets so much bigger and richer and goes in different directions. And then gameplay-wise, it has so many more locations and mechanics. And so you're not just getting a sequel, but you're getting this much bigger statement of what this thing is. In like a cinematic comparison, I'd like compare it to Godfather 2 of the same thing where, okay, there is technically a Godfather 3, but ignoring that piece of shit movie... That movie was like, we're not setting up a long series. This is the rest of the story of Michael Corleone that there is to tell. We're going to do right here, right now, and we're going to leave everything on the field. And I think God of War Ragnarok does that as well. It is it is a unique video game sequel because it is not trying to leave things, you know, in the world to go do more with later. In fact, it very clearly closes off those avenues near the end. And it just is like, this is the rest of our vision in one package. And I just find that hugely impressive. Yeah, I think it is like, like it's like the most profound rejection of the trilogy structure for video games I've ever seen. Because I think like, <laughs> yeah. you know, because we, we have just been addicted with the idea of trilogies and video games for kind of forever. Because, you know, video games as a thing is post Star Wars effectively. Um uh, and then, you know, modern video games is also post Lord of the Rings, which like really the movies specifically, um, which really brought that like trilogy idea, I think, back really hard for people. And it was like, OK, yeah, because that was also around the time where you had the prequel trilogy and people started thinking of things as these are trilogies um, and everything was pitched as trilogies. Halo is a trilogy like fucking Mass Effect is a trilogy, but like feel like Assassin's Creed somehow was supposed to be like a trilogy that had a trilogy in the middle of it. But they're like, it's a trilogy. <laughs> it's Assassin's Creed one, two and three, but two is three. It's like, you know, and then they've made a, a thousand of those games. And even when like, you know, three for three took over Halo again, their pitch was this is the reclaimer trilogy. Um, and then each game in that trilogy has decided to be a different thing to the point where Halo Infinite was like, I guess this it wasn't a trilogy effort because that tri the third game in that trilogy just happened off screen and now we're in, now we're a new maybe this will be another trilogy but like everyone likes the fucking likes marketing the trilogy thing and I think like it can work well but video games particularly these days take so fucking long to make that it, it's it maybe isn't a great idea it's maybe a lot better to do the God of War thing or Gravity Rush thing and say no we had our sort of establishing initial entry here where we like we you know where you build all of your tech you have to conceptualize everything from the ground up right um obviously there was an older series of god of war games um also a trilogy 
Um, even though there's like fucking three other games, it's still everyone calls it or thinks of it as a thrill trilogy. They marketed it as a trilogy, all that shit. Even when they're not trilogies, people pitch them as trilogies. Um, but this God of War 2018 stuff is effectively a brand new video game that is using characters and story elements um, and, and some broad concept from those old games. But all the technology, all the gameplay, all that stuff is completely built from the ground up. So they have to invent and create all that stuff for 2018. Then for the sequel, it's like we have all of that stuff made. We have our foundation, our platform. How can we take all of that and bring it to the highest level? And that is what your sequel is. And so since you have that foundation and you don't have to worry about building the foundation anymore, where do you go from there? Um, and I think like what's natural is that it's like, well, then you go to your end point and then you're done. Like, do you need to, does it make sense to try to then have a third game after that? What does that third game do? It's like you 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 should have taken that foundation to its like natural extreme is kind of what it feels like both Gravity Rush 2 does and this game does. And it, you know, I'm sure there's going to be further God of War games. There's room to be other God of War games, but those are going to be different God of War games is very clearly what this game is saying. Um, and that's awesome. Like there's something so satisfying about getting into this game's whole very big kind of third act. And just feeling like, oh, they're going for broke. It's not setting up teases for things to eventually be paid off one day. It is stuff that this game is just going to fucking do it and then leave. And, and like sort of say, peace out, motherfuckers. Like, drop the mic. We're done. Uh, and that's just a thing you very rarely get in video games. And you're just kind of stuck holding the bag for like five years waiting for a third game to come out. That hopefully will pay off all of those things. Um, and then sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and this game just says, yeah, fuck that shit. Let's just do it right now. The duology is a uh, underappreciated possibility in the world of fiction. Yeah. You know, I think for some reason, everyone wants to pay attention to like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings and not look at Godfather, which did a perfect two movie thing. You can do that too. I've always thought like, you know, Chris Nolan's Batman movies, if it had just been Batman Begins and the Dark Knight, I have issues with those movies. Boy, I would like them a lot more if mm -hmm. The Dark Knight Rises hadn't come out and made me then look back on those more negatively. Like there's a Spider-Man. Spider-Man is a perfect two-movie series by Sam Raimi with a third movie that I'm happy is there, but, you know, it's not that good compared to the other two. Like it's it, the duology is a fun idea, you know, and I think you're right that there is something so exhilarating about feeling like you get to the end of God of War Ragnarok and you feel like I did everything that you could do with this game that they made in 2018. I feel like they explored every possibility of this thing. And that's the same feeling I got from Gravity Rush 2. And I think those are two of the best video game sequels of all time. Mm -hmm. I think like just easily those are near the top of the list because there's just nothing left on the field after those games. It's like the, the possibility of doing more seems silly because this was such a complete, polished perfect experience and i think this is true in ragnarok both on story and on gameplay and level design and everything combat jesus you know yeah yes yeah and it all really pivots around that point that like neither of us quite got to the last time we talked about the game i yes. feel like uh which is like it's very funny almost how like i feel like when we talked about it like perfectly splits like i think the two halves of this game or the two kind of experiences of this game one of which is like this is good but it feels like more of the same and they're kind of starting to build up some new ideas and then it's like okay this is what this game is is what i kind of feel like that midpoint shows you yeah it's it's weird for me to think about what i was thinking about this time last time we reviewed it 
because now I look at Ragnarok and it feels very distinct to me from mm-hmm. the 2018 game. Like it feels very much like they are two related but different games because what Ragnarok becomes by the end is so much bigger and different and richer. Uh, I think it's clearly the better of the two games. But like, yeah, at the start, it has a intentionally slow, deliberate start. And I think correctly so. I think the game is paced right. But it takes a little while. You just have to have a little patience with it. Again, you know, it's like Godfather 2. It's longer. It's You have to engage with it a little more, and it's a little more challenging. But once you sort of get into the meat of it, you're like, this is incredible. Yeah, so do you want to just, like, go in spoiler detail at this point? Let's do it. Let's talk about it. Yeah, because I think that midpoint where, well, before we get to the midpoint, like, one thing we didn't talk about um, last time, because, again, I think we basically talked about most of the stuff up to... Vanaheim. Um, but one of the big things that happens in Vanaheim is that Kratos gets a different companion, which I think is like yes. in Freya, which is one of the first moments where the game really feels like I think there's two big moments early on. There's you play as Atreus, which we talked about that moment, um, which is huge. And then it's, oh, now it's you're playing as Kratos, but without Atreus. And the relationship between Kratos and Freya that gets established over the course of Vanaheim, where ultimately like she you know more or less forgives kratos it's less about forgiveness and more like a recognition of like we need to work together and that there's more here than just do i forgive you or not forgive you for killing balder um and but like the sort of understanding that both those people come to because they have these shared experiences that you get over the course of vanaheim um like what you get with atreus where atreus being on his own gives you a totally different perspective on that character in his world, in his story, in his life, because he is outside the shadow of his father. And you get to see that and see how he interacts with people like Sindri and Ungerboda totally differently than you ever see him when you're with Kratos. Similarly, Kratos being only with um, Freya, because even for that section, Mimir is left back at the camp, gives you a totally different perspective on Kratos, on this version of Kratos, where he is just with adults. Um, and you get some moments throughout the game also where it's just him and Mimir talking and Atreus isn't there, where you also see this other side of Kratos where he doesn't have to be the father. Um, he, he is like another adult talking to other adults who are dealing with and thinking about similar problems that he's going through. Um, and he gives them advice and they give him advice. And there's something about that very mature relationship he has with Freya, particularly when he finally, like talks about for the only time in both these games his old family from the previous trilogy um, which if you've played those games you know the inciting incident of god of war one is kratos is tricked by uh, Ares into killing his own family his wife and daughter um and then a detail that this game actually doesn't get into is that his ashy white skin are the ashes of his old family that has been cursed and like grafted onto his skin that is why he's the ghost of sparta is because he's literally carrying the ashes of his old family that he killed with him it's basically partially a play on the on the hercules myth um and he finally brings that up and confides in that with freya um and realizes that they have those similarities that they're both people who have grieved over dead children um in like a destroyed family and kratos is trying to build something from that and that to me was a really big moment it was what i was like alluding to in the last podcast uh, that we talked about where I mentioned there was something that I felt like I started to see other sides of this game that you hadn't yet gotten to. And that was like specifically the sequence I was talking about. Yeah, I mean, there's that. And moreover, just the way they confront 
the dangling thread from the first game that is Freya Mm -hmm. is so impressive to me. That's what really, like, turned me on this game was just before you even get to Asgard or any of that, the Freya stuff. Because that's the one note that I think rang a little off for me at the end of the 2018 game is that... It was it's it's unresolved and understandably unresolved, but the idea that Freya is now going to be your enemy was disappointing to me because I liked that character so much and I thought there was so much more to do with her. Mm-hmm. And I thought the idea of like uh, her being like a boss we're gonna fight that's the worst version of this. That's the worst way to continue this story. And you know who agrees? The fine people at Sony Santa Monica yeah. because what they do is they start the game with her attacking you. You do a boss fight with her pretty early on where she's in her Valkyrie form. And then from that point on, you're talking with her and dealing with her, and she and 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 Kratos and Atreus become a family again. And they're a family who have done bad things to each other, but like there is instead of like I think reducing this to the binary that most video games, by virtue of being playable objects that need enemies and binary outcomes, often push stories into binary directions, they take that off the table. And make Freya your companion. And they don't make it as simple as they have a heart to heart and she forgives and they hug. There is this long stretch in Vanaheim that is this like unburdening for both characters. Where they come to this mutual understanding that is not as simple as I'm sorry or I forgive you. But is recognizing the complexity of being a parent. And of you know having a son like Balder and things going the wrong way. And that that happened both because of mistakes that Freya made and because of mistakes that Kratos made. But ultimately there's this other figure out there named Odin who did, you know, much worse things to both of them and that they have more in common. And like the way all of those things come together so organically and humanistically and in the course of time, I love it. I I, like the bond that becomes forged between those characters is much richer than it was in 2018 Mm -hmm. And I don't think I would have expected that, given that that game ends with Kratos brutally murdering uh, Balder out of necessity. But like, it's uh, it's not what I expect any video game to do. It's like this game. This is another game that is full of, I think, the kind of like grace that I wish Last of Us Two had had in different parts, <laughs> like humanity. Um, and I think just deals with it beautifully. Yeah, and then also there's like some gameplay stuff there of having. You know, there's something like almost surreal, especially because I had replayed God of War 2018 earlier this year about being Kratos and having a companion character that is not Atreus, where you're so used to Atreus. And there's something very powerful um, about that. And similarly with like Atreus, there's something very powerful about him having a different companion character In other than once he gets a sword, he sticks with the sword for a while. But for most of the game, every time you cut to Atreus, he has a different companion that he's kind of learning from. Um, but Kratos having this very different relationship with Freya and her being this character that's then with you all the time. She has the sigil arrows that open up like new puzzle types that didn't exist, which was also like a thing that was uh, very refreshing because in the first half of the game, they're doing the same puzzle, like types of puzzles that the first game did. Um, the sigils and some of that stuff starts like opening up different gameplay variety as well. Um, but yeah, it's like really over the course of that Vanaheim section that that starts that the Kratos side of things starts kind of really opening up through that relationship with Freya. And then you get to cut to Atreus and then Atreus goes to Asgard, which is where the um, story fully kicks in, I think to becoming like the page Turner quality that you described earlier. That happens once he goes to Asgard, um, which is such a smart choice. 
Uh, like I think one of the smartest things this game does is giving us as much of Odin and Thor as it does. Because it's so easy as a video game to imagine an alternate universe version of God of War Ragnarok where Odin and Thor only really appear at the very end. Um, or if this was a thing that didn't have its like single camera shot setup that it inherits from the first game and you have like things that other video games would do where here's every once in a while between levels a cinematic plays where you see the villains. You know, villains in video games are so hard to do because everything is so from the player's perspective, it's hard to develop them. Whereas for movies, it's very easy. It's natural for a movie to cut to a scene that just has the antagonist in it and doesn't involve the protagonist, and you can just do that to develop the antagonist, and nobody cares. In video games, I think it's really hard to do those scenes and make the player really care about them. Um, and so then just deciding, well, let's just get Odin and Thor in there fucking right from the start. You've got an incredible scene we talked about last time with them right at the beginning of the game, and then at the midpoint of the game, you get lots of story, like all the way leading up to the end, of Atreus on his side of the story in the world of Asgard, interacting with those characters, seeing Odin up close, seeing his relationship with Thor and the other gods, um, and, and building up that whole side so that when Ragnarok comes, there is something so much more meaningful about what happens with characters like Thor and Odin because you have spent all that time with them, not as direct enemies, um, but as like other people that you are like interacting with. And there's a complexity there that the game is allowed to have that lots of games, I think, really struggle with, with their antagonist characters. 100%. And it helps that Odin is one of the best video game villains yes. in the history of this medium. Like, on the fucking Mount Rushmore of video game villains, you put Odin from God of War Ragnarok. Such a dynamic character. So, like, you know he's a piece of shit every single time. But he's so good at pretending not to be. Right? Like, he is, and I think this is a really interesting, like, thematic duality the game sets up. He is the ultimate narcissist. He yeah. cannot imagine anything else in the world that is not him or directly related to him, which makes him the shittiest possible father, but he is the all-father. And Kratos, continuing his journey from 2018, his real superpower is the opposite of that. It is his empathy. It is the, the goodness in him. And it is that, you know, the vision he has at the end of this game is of being an actual father. Like, of, like, what is actual fatherhood? Fatherhood is being able to look at another person and recognize that they are different from you and letting them go, which is what he has to do with Atreus in this game. Odin is incapable of that. So on a basic dramatic level, you have this great understanding of theme that you play out with these two father characters, Odin and Kratos. And it's two versions of fatherhood, one that is about ownership and one that is about sort of letting someone flourish. Um, and then, of course, it just makes Odin such a delicious villain because he is just such a piece of shit. But he is so... It's just like the, the quiet scene chewing that that actor does in every fucking scene he's in is so good. I could not get enough of him. Just a great character. Yeah, I mean, you have, when you first go to Asgard, you have the the basic, like, the walk and talk scene with um, Odin as you are going about Asgard. And he's just, like, teleporting you from place to place. Um, and, you know, the sort of, like, uh, weird, you know, manager energy that he pulls yes. off um is just like it's such a kind of slightly offbeat take on odin but feels really appropriate right there's a you know there there should be a slyness to odin as a character um a scheming quality to him that is very different from most sort of like leaders of a pantheon you know he's a very different god than someone like a zeus he's a very different figure than zeus 
Um, and I think that, that the idea of sort of imagining a modern Odin as that sort of slimy manager of a business who only really sees like his employees and even his family as like tools to be used for his own profit. Um, and that's like the only way he's able to really imagine other people in his life. Uh, and I think that's a really powerful way of envisioning Odin, as you say, using that as this um, alternative to Kratos. And then you also have in the middle there um, Thor, because the key thing here is that Odin isn't just a father figure. He's a grandfather figure, right? Odin, Odin is also the opposite of Zeus. Zeus is a character who is absent in this game, but whose absence is notable because he's Kratos' father, right? Um, and and Kratos' relationship with Zeus is what which you get hints of in God of War uh, 2018 when he's in hell. Like that sets up so much of who Kratos is as a person. Is Kratos was also used and discarded by Zeus. In the original God of War 2, um, Zeus kills effectively kills Kratos and then through mythological stuff, Kratos is able to come back and fight the fates and all that shit is what the original God of War 2 is about. Like that huge scar on Kratos' stomach that he has in this game, that is from Zeus running him through with a fucking sword in God of War 2. Um, so there's like, there's a pairing of Kratos and Odin in some respects, but there's also a pairing of Kratos and Thor, but Thor is still under the thumb of his father in a way that Kratos, you know, as destructive as it was, was able to liberate himself from that abusive relationship that he had with Zeus. Um, and that's like another dynamic that you start to see when you get to Asgard is you see the, all these other sides of Odin up close and see like the nature of his villainy. But you also see the conflicted nature of Thor wanting to walk the same path that the Kratos we know is currently walking, but Thor not being able to do it because Odin is right there, constantly nudging him back onto the, like, you're an idiot, you just kill things, you destroy things, that's all you're good for, that's all you need to be good for, just do what I say, and we'll be fine. Um, and, you know, Thor is constantly trying to be a better father for to Thrud, his daughter, but he just can't be it because Odin is still there the whole time. Yeah, it's it's this whole study in contrast that is never like super in your face explicit. You don't have like Atreus go back to his room and go like, huh, I wonder how this mirrors my dad's relationship yeah. with his dad. You know, like there's none of that. But I do think the game is like very, very smart about how it sets up these parallels and it makes it so compelling because it all comes out of character. It all comes out of the ways we understand these characters and their conflicts. And it all comes back to using what the God of War 2018 was also so good at, using the mythology to talk about very, very real everyday issues of, of, of being a father. And then I think in this game of being a son, of being your own person, of coming into adulthood. Um, and, you know, just the... I know the datification of video games has become like a, a meme or whatever, but like these two games are so sincere and full-hearted and thoughtful about it, where it's just you can feel, I think, the passion the developers have thinking about their own lives and putting that to to work in these games and it is so well observed and it feels so real you know as crazy as these games get and these are god of war games there's some nutso stuff that happens there's some gory bits uh there's some big god fights the core of it is as is as real and well observed as anything in the last of us or any of your more down-to-earth yeah. you know video games yeah uh better i think yeah i i absolutely agree and i think that yeah the the different examples of parenting and of fatherhood is really powerful. And I also, I do, one thing I really like about this game is that I think it, um, it, it has a much more expansive cast. And so it is able to have 
more female characters in it, which is good because that first game really only had Freya. And I like the variety of different women you see um, both in now Kratos' life, but then also particularly for Atreus, where he has like Throod and Ungerboda. Um, but I think also I like how seriously this game takes like the importance of relationships between men. Because when I'm thinking about that, like kind of the father parallels you get, one of like the most, I think, striking relationships in this game to me um, you start seeing it most powerfully, I think, around this time is where it starts really coming up a lot more is Kratos and Mimir as co-parents of Atreus, right? And it's yeah. not that there's, I think, there's not meant to be a, like a romantic connotation or anything between the relationship between Kratos and Mimir, but there is a real intimacy and friendship and like a family relationship where Mimir calling Kratos brother feels less like a, a verbal affectation like he has from the first game of just being friendly. And now it feels like, you know, Kratos feels like he's someone who has, like, accepts it. If you read the journal entry from Amir in the game, that one is written in Kratos' voice. And it's him, like, saying effectively, like, he's one of the only people in this world who I can, like, tolerate calling me brother. Partially because you learn, again, Kratos had a brother. Um, and that didn't go super great. Um, that's another thing you learn. Yeah. Or they bring back from the old games and bring up in the Freya section. Uh, but I like that this game thinks about how one of the key ways that Kratos needs to develop in his worldview and his relationship with Atreus isn't just by getting, I think a thing, a story we've seen a lot, which is like finding a surrogate mother, which in like the form of Freya and having like a feminine counterpart that sort of like cools the masculine temper of <laughs> Kratos. And I think that's like a thing you see a lot. And it's a little bit of the dynamic that happens like on the boundaries of God of War 2018, the sense that like the mother being gone means that that sort of like the feminine influence is lost and Kratos must now struggle without that being there. Um, and I like that this game says like part of the answer to that is not finding a surrogate mother it is finding a, like another man who is also struggling with these issues of like toxic masculinity and anger and like the regret over mistakes you've made in the past and bonding and finding a solution together there. And the intimacy between Kratos and Mimir and a lot of those sequences were there alone and talking about problems with Atreus and trying to figure out how to get through to Atreus together um, are some of my favorite scenes in the whole game. It's beautiful. It is a game about uh, it's a game about found family, and it's a game about putting families together. And it is about, you know, Atreus. Atreus is off to a much better start in his adulthood than Kratos was, because he has this very strong family unit. That even though he only has one living relative in Kratos, he has Mimir as this weird bodiless uncle, and he has Freya as this you know, mother, aunt, whatever you want to say, you know, another family figure. And, and you have Brock and Sindri and there's stuff that happens there, obviously. But there's, he has this whole like kind of home that I think yeah. Kratos has helped build. And that is something, I said this last time and I think it continues throughout the whole game. This game never backslides. It, it Everything that happened in the 2018 game really matters. Mm -hmm. I never feel like Kratos suddenly becomes the kind of unreasonable anger god he was in 2018. Like he is a good dad trying to do his best in this game and like sometimes a much more reasonable figure than Atreus is because Atreus is a crazy teenager right yeah. but seeing how do you deal with that is still the question and I think all of that character development is just so human and so interesting um, and yeah when it, there is this turn where you start to hear like Mimir calling him brother like they effectively are they effectively are and and Mimir is effectively an uncle to Atreus and that relationship is really cool. There is, there are all kinds of intimacies in this game, you know, and for a 
for a series that once was noted for its really graphic sex scenes, <laughs> it's cool that you eventually get this sequel that is about kind of every intimacy other than sex. I feel like it's explored in different ways in this game. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you do the side quest in Svartalfheim uh, with like the big whale monster that's chained up there? No, I don't think I did. Okay, because there's that. There's a lot of stuff there with Mimir and Kratos. Um, and it's like it's about a, like a mistake that. Mimir... Oh no no no! Yes, I did. Yes, okay. I did. I'm, there's a lot in this game. Yes. Now I'm yes. Yeah, I, that you know, Mimir is the one who uh, chained up this big creature that eventually yes. was used to, to harvest like it's like flesh and oil um, to you know to light candles and all that kind of shit. Um, and it's been chained up there for hundreds, thousands, whatever mythic time scale years. Um, and Kratos freeze it and there's something about that that's like it you know you can obviously do it at any point it's side content but the side content of this game is really good and it's all intended to tie directly into the story um and like explore those other corners and that's one that i remember feeling like okay there's like setting up a lot more here with mimir in god of war 2018 mimir i liked him a lot and i think it's like it's an incredible performance and it's a very charismatic performance but that character exists in that game so clearly as a convenience you know it's like they needed a third character it like at a certain point like you can't do a fucking 20 plus hour long game and you only have two talking characters with you for almost the whole thing um so it's like and there's a lot of plot stuff that needed to happen that i imagine they just couldn't figure out there's any reasonable way to do without having someone from that world that knows more about this shit. So Mimir feels like he exists in that game fundamentally because he needs to be there for plot reasons. Whereas here, I think they figure out much more natural, bigger thematic ways to tie him in. And that's the first time that pops up is that connection between Kratos and Mimir of seeing that Mimir has made mistakes in his past as bad as the shit that Kratos has done. Um, and they're both struggling with those regrets and both struggling with how do you try to write wrongs that you committed and realizing like there is like you can do your best but there's no way to actually right those wrongs and you need to still march forward somehow um that's like a really key moment that quest line that starts setting up that idea yes well because you also have parallel to that in that part of the game you have the like factories that were set up Mm -hmm. like that are billowing smoke that you go shut down and like the enslavement of the dwarves under odin which isn't exactly mimir's fault but he rightly feels guilty for because of this role he had and he thought he was doing the right thing at the time but really was you know like it's it's really well done and i agree about the side content this is why i want to just play the game again and kind of do it all at once because it kind of feels like this game is like the lord of the rings movies where you've got your theatrical cut and you've got your extended cut and the theatrical cut is just focused on sort of your main character and you go through the plot and then the extended cut gives you all the kind of extra stuff that kind of fleshes out the world and you can kind of play the game either way and it's a good experience either way but i do feel like if you play through it and you do the side stuff kind of as it comes up it's like you're getting these this like bespoke extended cut version of the experience and i think that's a it's a very smart way to structure the game and make the side content feel so much more than filler you know yeah um and it's it's that thing where i think yeah it is able to like flesh out all the corners of the world um and also give you like particularly when you do some of the stuff in the crater in vanaheim it just gives you like more space to play with all the systems in the game without all the like the pressure of like the main plot line hanging over you and um yeah i just think like across the board the side content is incredibly well implemented and it's very thoughtful how it plays into the overall structure of the not just the gameplay design, but like the world and the plot and the themes and the setting, all of them are like really thoroughly integrated. It's very Witcher Mm 3-esque in that there's a lot of side stuff that I think they could have justifiably just made part of the main story. 
but I do think like having it kind of be a little more player determined and being kind of a pressure valve release from whatever the main plot is makes it even richer. Um, yeah, and it all feels like it has a place. You could 100% this game and never feel like you're wasting your time, I don't think. Yeah. One other thing, just think about the side stuff that I think is incredibly impressive that would be interesting to play the game again for specifically is the nature of the game is such that since at the end of the game, Atreus leaves. And so, and there's no way to get him back or whatever, you know, there's no, in the end game, in the post game or whatever, it is just Kratos and Freya, which I think is a very powerful choice to just take away the Atreus abilities and all of that are just gone. You don't have access to them. But that means that all of Atreus's dialogue and all of the side stuff needs to also be able to be Freya dialogue. Um, I have some stories about this. Yes, because... Because like... Yeah, go ahead. Because like I had started... While having, when Atreus comes back and you have like a good stretch of time where you just go hang out with Kratos. I mean, there's literally a part where Atreus is like, can we just, it's it's after what happens with Brock. Is, can yeah. we just go out and adventure and stuff? Uh, and I wound up going back to, um, I think it's, far, no, which which land is it that has the big desert? Uh, Alfheim. Um, Alfheim. I went back to Alfheim. Yeah, the Elf world. And I went back to Alfheim and I was doing some of that. And eventually I had to leave because, I, again, I had to, had to finish this shit up so I could go on the road. Um and but I had left like one quest unfinished and I went back with Freya after I finished the game and did the rest of it and I heard some of the same stories and pieces of dialogue but with what Freya was saying instead of Atreus and it's super interesting because they they really did a deep dive of thinking of all of it to kind of like write them for both scenarios and it's really cool yeah it's it reminds me a lot of um Red Dead Redemption 1 that like all the side stuff in that game needs to be written so that Jack Marston can encounter it um not necessarily John Marston um and yeah it's just like it's a very impressive thing and one of the things that's interesting and it's and i would love to if i replay the game play it this way i did all the stuff in vanaheim in the crater which is the most intense like extensive side content of the game it's fucking great i did all that with atreus at the point of the game you just mentioned where it's after brock is killed and it's like can we just go do something i'm like well, I have all that. I had like dipped my toes in the crater by like, was like, this seems big. I'm going to go back and do some other stuff. And I was like, okay, yeah, let's go and let's just do that. And I spent like a day in real life just playing that whole section with Atreus. Um, and it felt so natural a way to encounter it. Um, that it was like, we went on like one last big grand adventure and fought fucking dragons and did all this crazy shit. Um, and then it's like, okay, now it's time to go back. Um, but I think it's, it also makes perfect sense that the way you would encounter that is you have beaten the game. You're with Freya. Freya is from Vanaheim. Let's go back there and wrap up all those like hanging threads with the fucking queen of Vanaheim with you. Um, and I would be I would love to see what are what is all the dialogue in that section like if you're with Freya, because there's a lot of writing there and it's all basically conversations between Kratos and his companion character. Um, and the fact that you can have two different companions and you have to write all the side content to work either way, um, that's like a really cool a really cool feat of writing that only a video game would ever even be able to do, obviously by the nature of the medium. Yeah, it's awesome. And, you know, one of the things about the dialogue in this game is that it is so sincere. Mm -hmm. It is so, like, this is a hyper-sincere game. And sincerity at that level, especially in our kind of sincerity allergic culture can be a, a tough line to walk 
And one of the things that I, I think is so amazing about this game is that... So neither you or I, I think, played the original God of War games when they were coming out, right? No, I played them um, on the PS3 versions that summer that you right. let me use your PS3 and gave me the shitty PS3 yeah. controller you gave me. Never, ever going to forget that. No, I love um, But, like, you and I were both aware of those games when we were kids, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And it's like, those are the cool, hyper-violent games where you press the buttons in and he... You press the sticks in and he squeezes the eyes out and yes. stuff like that. And there's all the sex scenes and my parents wouldn't let me play them. Can you imagine, Sean, going back Time Machine 2007, telling you as God of War 2 is coming out, saying, hey, the next time there's a God of War 2, it's going to be a 40-hour game of people talking about their feelings intensely. 40 hours, nonstop, talking about their feelings. It's going to be like a therapy session. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? It's so funny to me that, not that like those games have our brain dead or anything, but it's so funny to me that like we went from those being kind of like, and maybe unfairly sometimes pigeonholed as like symbolic of like hyper excess in video games mm-hmm. to this game is like emotional excess. Like it is so much of particularly the last half of this game is such intense unburdenings between characters and so well written that it works, but like it so easily couldn't because it is so sincere and open and honest and it just blows me away. Yes, it is. It is such a big turn. I mean, just like imagining Kratos from those games and then seeing the cutscene at the end of Ragnarok and being like where he cries when he sees this image of himself being loved by people um it's like that they would be able to make that turn and earn it you know it's like yeah right after you find like the optional sex scene or you solved a puzzle by needlessly like smashing a dude's skull on the fucking switch that activates the puzzle or whatever you know like like he he Kratos is sadistic in those games. He is, you know, I've, I've used this metaphor before, but it, those games are basically like playing a slasher movie where you are the villain and all the, like, the teenagers or whatever are fucking Greek gods. Like, that's what it is. It's sadistic in the way that slasher movies are sadistic. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think those games are super fun. Um, I think God of War 3 goes a little bit too far with it, but God of War 1 and 2 are great. And part of the fun of them is that specific aspect. Um, and, and so it's like those games are awesome for their day and for what they were going for. Uh, and it is very fascinating that they like could make this turn, but also like the turn feels so earned. And one of the reasons why it feels earned in some ways is because of what those games were. Like that's part of where the sincerity I think w- like works for me is because there's like a, there's a metatextual sincerity to it of like it's not just that Kratos has grown up it's that we all have grown up in like of people playing video games you know like we've all grown up from when the, what a game needed to be to get like the attention that it got was super hyper violent um in the like late 90s and early 2000s and like the heyday of games like Mortal Kombat and stuff that like that was so much of what the culture was into specifically in video game world and then now like games like big budget games published by a first party studio don't have to do that kind of stuff and it can just be this level of sincerity um and can be emotionally vulnerable in these ways like there's something very powerful about that real world meta level of what these games i think kind of like represent that the games i think are aware of like the games are intentionally leaning into that by being about god of war still and that's like we you don't have to let go of that you can grow up and change that doesn't mean that you have to like forget or throw away or ignore the what you once were because that's the point that you have to grow from but that point still exists and i think that's like something there's something powerful about what these games do with that real world dynamic 
Oh, I love it. And I, I think something that it really adds to these games is whether or not you've played the PlayStation 2 God of War games. And I've never played them all the way through. I've played parts of them. Um, you don't need to, but it gives such a rich sense of backstory to mm-hmm. these games. It's not even invoked all that much across these two games. Like, I think you could reasonably convince someone there was no other God of War. Like, these are just brand new and, like, that's just a weird backstory. But it gives, like, they're able to leverage it in such a way that I think it it so effectively sells the illusion that Kratos is a living being who had a past, who did things, who lived... Like, before Atreus comes into being, he lived a fucking life. Yes. And and that's true of all parents. You know, no matter what age you had kids, you, you were a different person before your kids knew you, right? And so any child who has parents, you look at your parents and and you can only kind of intellectually understand that they lived a life before you, but you can't really know it. And that's part of what I think this game is about, right? Um, and for the parent, and I'm not a parent yet, maybe one day, but like, I assume that's the same kind of thing of like, there's parts of yourself that before you had a child that you can't share with them, right? Because you can't, they weren't around for that. And I think because Kratos literally lived a life in this medium, he had a big series of three mainline games and a shit ton of spinoffs, um, they're able to leverage all of that. And there's this sense that like Kratos was a person and he continues to be and results in just one of the richest characterizations I've ever seen. And let me say something bold here. I want to see if you'll disagree with this. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. I think Christopher Judge in this game is the best performance I've ever seen in an English language video game. I mean, it's certainly like in in the conversation, like it's in the top five yeah. or whatever. Um, I'd obviously have to like think about it, but yes, I'm intentionally being bold, yes. but like it's at least in the top. Like it's unreal, and I absolutely include also the mocap we get yes. of him. Um, it, it, it's there's that scene in the middle where where Atreus has left and he's in his room. It's when that scene ends with the transition where he's punching the wall and it mm-hmm. becomes Atreus punching the wall. But, like, just the raw fucking emotion. Like, here's something I'm 100% certain of. I've never seen better character animation yes. in a video game. Kratos in this is 100% the best character animation I think this medium has ever achieved. I, I will I will definitely agree with that. Particularly in, like, the cinematics. I think it is, like, the... It, you know, I'm sure they're probably, like, in some, you know, maybe, like, Ratchet and Ratchet and Clank or something. There are maybe higher poly models, you know, that are, like, technically more advanced than Kratos in this game. But, like, his character model... The like animation that's used on him, um, the performance in the voice, um, and like the facial, um, capture and all of that, and like I think it's the combination, obviously, of both like the technical artists that are implementing all this stuff and tweaking it, and then Christopher Judge's performance as an actor combined is just like an overwhelmingly powerful performance. Um, and there are lots of those scenes, and it's it's a lot of the scenes that usually are the like kind of some of the transition scenes. I think are typically where you yeah. get some of the juiciest ones. But any moment where Kratos is by himself in this game is so powerful. And there's like three or four of them across the whole game. And it's where I think the um, the single camera, like one shot style that they go for is most effective is in the moments where Kratos goes into a room, you fall in the room, he left Mimir behind, um, Atreus isn't there with him, and he's just alone in his room or like in the tent near the end. And you just... You're with there with him the whole time with that camera, just watching him emotionally try to come to terms with everything that is happening that has happened in the last section. And there's a moment there around the middle of the game where he goes into his room and sits down. He like takes his shit off and he's just sitting there like looking at his scars, right? Like the chains on his wrists, 
um, from yes. the Blades of Chaos and the scar from on his stomach from Zeus. And he's just sort of sitting there and thinking about it. And like the confidence of a video game cutscene like this, especially one that is all in engine, you know, it's not cutting to like, here we hired Blur Studios to make this incredible CG cinematic, um, you know, that's like a video file or whatever with these amazing characters that's basically like, you know, Pixar movie level quality. This is just an in-game cinematic using all those assets. And just the confidence to say, no, this is going to be like a three to five minute scene with no dialogue. You're just in this room looking at this character as he's thinking um, and like looking at himself and dealing with his own emotions. Um, there's like not a lot of games that do that. One of the only ones is like Red Dead Redemption 2 has a couple of moments like that with Arthur. But like, I think it's a hard kind of scene for a video game to do. Like the level of buy-in your audience needs to have and the level of execution you need to have as like animators and artists in order to really sell moments like that is so high. Uh, and they, it's an incredibly high bar that they clear like with gusto every single time they do it. Cause there are all the scenes where that happens are my favorite scenes in the game. I 100% agree. And man, it's worth t- commenting on again though. They did the one shot thing again. Yep. They did the whole thing and it's like easy to, I've, I've seen very little conversation about it. And I understand because this is the second time they've done it, so it's easy to take for granted. It's such casual magic because, like, I I said this about the 2018 game a couple months ago when I started replaying it, that, like, it's one thing to be able to technically do it. And there are technical challenges involved in doing it. What's really hard about it is the imagination of it. Mm -hmm. Like, it's the the planning of it. It's the storyboarding. It's the cinematography of how are you going to have whole scenes play out. And we have just... Throughout this whole game, they have taken the cut, the language of the cut, out of this game. It's just, it's not in their toolbox at any point. They've decided we're not using cuts. And so, there are, you know, janky moments where they technically are cutting, like when you go to white between doors or you go into a menu or something like that. But in terms of the actual, like, main flow of the story and of play and of scenes... They've just decided to not not do these cinematically. It's actually much more theatrical or something. Like it is all in your field of vision. And sometimes that means you're going to have whole scenes where characters are just off screen. And you're working with sound design. And you know, you're going to have... And I think what makes those scenes so powerful, like you're talking about, Sean, is we're with Kratos. And we see him shed Mimir. And he leaves another person behind. And we walk past Brock and Sindri. And then he goes in alone. And because there's no break in that, and then we're just with him time becomes such a factor in this and it's just you know it's something that at the length god of war is working at of course would be impossible for a movie to do but even for a video game to be able to sort of imagine and string this all together uh, it's just incredible you know i think it's it's easy to take for granted but it is should not be taken for granted no because this game does it better than the last game did i mean and it has a much more significant challenge because it's got the two lead characters so it has to find ways to transition the camera between them and it's always very creative um when it does it but i think for me in god of war 2018 a lot of the moments where the single camera shot thing stood out were some of the more bombastic moments because that's like the stuff with like the fight on the dragon and going from the top of the mountain down you know like those moments where it's like oh my god i can't believe they're doing this and that's like very cool um but i think the intention before the single shot thing was always about creating a greater sense of intimacy between the player and the characters. And I think the 2018 game does a good job with that. 
Um, but I think Ragnarok does it better. Um, and, it, and that's like the thing that stands out to me about it in this game in a way that in the last game, it didn't stand out about the intimacy. It mostly stood out about like the bombast that you were able to get, the contrast of like the intimate camera style with the crazy mythical level stuff that's happening was part of like what it kind of wowed me about it in 2018. Whereas here it's the like, we're going to follow Kratos into his tent on the day before like the big battle and you're just going to be there with him. And that's where that shot and like that style works and is most impressive and stood out the most to me. Um, and I think that that's so cool that they were able to find a way to fully like, I think, ring all the value you can stylistically out of that approach that they developed for the last game. Probably my favorite of that is him going into the tent. Atreus eventually comes in to be a kid because he needs his dad on this day, right? And he asks for a story. And the camera gradually moves Atreus out of frame. And we're just on Kratos as he tells this story to his son. And then realizes he's fallen asleep. And just the... It's, it's completely uncut. No breaks in time. We're gradually more and more with Kratos in the moment. It's, it's emotionally devastating. It's, it's incredible. It's something no other game has pulled off. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, and there's a sense of like loneliness that that style is able to express because of how much you're in like being able to move physically with the character between those moments of being with everybody to those moments of being alone it heightens that sense of being alone so much um and it's like really important for kratos uh in this game in particular to have those moments where it's like i just need to deal with this shit um and like i cannot be around other people right now uh, it's just like a fascinating spot to put that character in. That's an incredible style with which to experience those emotions. Yeah. You want to talk about the ending? Before we get to the ending, let's talk about, there's a couple of other big pieces that I do want to bring up. Um, because one of my favorite sections in terms of like gameplay and, and as an old school God of War fan is Kratos' whole side when Atreus goes to Asgard. Kratos' side of the story is that he gets the prophecy um, from uh, the Fates, uh, the Norns, which are the Fates in Norse mythology, of course, in the original God of War 2. And they allude to this a couple times throughout the game and some of the conversations. Uh, Kratos did, of course, kill the, the three Fates in the Greek <laughs> mythology in the original God of War 2. Um, and he literally time travels in that game, which was a thing I had kind of forgotten about until they bring it up here. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, right, that's right. God of War 2 is fucking crazy because he literally kills the fates and goes backwards in time to the opening cutscene of the game. That's right. Um, and then he starts the fucking second war with the Titans uh, and the Olympian gods. Um, but anyways, he goes to the Norns. He gets the prophecy uh, about Atreus and that um, uh, Heimdall is going to try to kill Atreus and so then Kratos sets out on an old school God of War style quest where he's going he needs to go get a weapon because Heimdall's ability is that he's able to see like the intentions of anybody so he, he's impossible to hit um, and so Kratos needs a weapon to, to counteract that and so he goes with Brock back to Svartalfheim to go forge some new weapon and that is the structure of the classic God of War games the structure of the classic God of War games is uh, Kratos runs into an opponent he cannot beat it's a god or like Hercules you know a mythical hero or something like that uh, Kratos is defeated or you know has to retreat or something happens um, he then needs to find a way to counteract whatever that ability is that is going to take the form of like a, a 
an ability or a weapon or something that he needs to get in order to defeat that boss. And then he goes and kills that boss and has like a big crazy, I'm going to cut your head off and shove it down your neck hole and then throw you into the sun or whatever like nonsense <laughs> he does, you know, or I'm going to stick your fucking eyes out and all that shit. Um, and I love the idea of this Kratos having, you know, being absent from Atreus, not really knowing what to do, being afraid. And so the thing he goes back to is exactly that. It's like, okay, let's do what I do best. I'm going to go get a fucking weapon. I'm going to figure all this stuff out. And that whole side of the game, I think, is really compelling to see Kratos starting to backslide. He knows he's starting to backslide. He's not an idiot. He knows exactly what he's doing, but he feels powerless because he's so afraid for his son. Um, and then that also leads to one of my favorite things in this whole game from a gameplay thing, which is the spear is so fucking yes, cool yes. in this game. Oh my God. Uh, and it's so well paced because you get it a little bit past the midpoint of the game. You get it at the point where you they basically have allowed you to get to the end, more or less of the skill tree for the Axe and the Blades of Chaos. And that's when they give you this fucking spear that then is like, is, you know, based on the Dropnir ring or whatever, which is the ring that can make infinite rings from Norse mythology. And so it's a spear that can create infinite spears. So you just throw the spear and then you have another spear. And then you can blow up all the spears that are embedded in enemies or items in the world. So you can use that for puzzles and also just like to fuck people up. And there's all these crazy moves you get in the skill tree where you leave spear tips embedded in people when you do moves and impale them in the ground. And it has the fucking great the greatest execution animations in the whole game like everything about the fucking spear is so cool and it and i think it like walks that line perfectly of where you both know kratos shouldn't be doing this that he's trying to find a better way but man this is a really good spear and heimdall's a fucking dick and i cannot wait to fucking try to kill him with this fucking spear <laughs> um and i think it's able to find the appeal of the old games while also like thematically and emotionally dealing with the understanding that that's not really ultimately the thing that Kratos should be prioritizing. Yeah, I agree 100%. And we might as well talk about the combat here, Sean. I was thinking we would talk about it uh, a little later, but, but since we're bringing up the spear, that spear, you're right, it's my favorite part of the combat in this game. It's so cool. It's so different from the other ones. Mm -hmm. Like It opens up such a different way of gameplay because it's like... I guess both of the others have a ranged component, obviously. You can throw the axe and stuff, but the ranged component of this is so different with, like, embedding the spears and then blowing them up, but then there's also close combat stuff to do and all the... it's And it's completely as fleshed out as the other weapons. Like, my take on the combat in this game is there's another video game sequel I would compare it to, and I think this is the better version of it, is this game feels a lot like a good version to me of Doom Eternal, where I thought, like, both this and Doom Eternal sort of take that really good combat system from the first game and add just a shit ton to it. Just a ton of new mechanics, new weapons, all sorts of stuff. Like, this is a much bigger combat suite in God of War Ragnarok. But, and I know you disagree with me on Doom, but, like, for me and for a lot of people, like, Doom Eternal, I think, got very over-designed for me. Like, there's so many pieces that to accommodate them, they kind of had everything take a specific place and function, and the gameplay became less about being strategic or creative and other just the kind of like repeating the thing you have to do to kill this thing over and over and over again and it made uh, that game a real slog for me by the end and i think what they've managed to pull off with ragnarok is a similar sense of just hugely expanding the arsenal but then maintaining with the enemy design and with the ways you can customize your moves and and just the basic you know controls and gameplay and fighting 
that it does feel like deeply strategic. You have so many options. They give you so many good combat scenarios that push you and force you to use lots of creativity that, uh, like, honestly, in a way that reminds me of, like, Insomniac Spider-Man or something, where I think the the big arsenal and the way they've, in, in like, built on it doesn't feel excessive. It feels like this combat system blooming into its ultimate form. Yeah, I think, like, part of what it is for this is that you've got the... Um... You know, you've got your like special runic attacks or whatever that that go on cooldown, um, and so like I started in the home stretch of this game. Once you had like kind of everything unlocked and you had figured out how to use the spear really well and everything, um, the ultimate like kind of combat strategy I settled on. And this is kind of how I did all the like the end game combat challenges and stuff like that to get the platinum. Um, was about cycling between the three weapons based on like where your cooldowns were at. So it's like, okay, I'm using my axe and then I'm figuring out like the ideal way to place to use the cooldown there. Then I'm switching to my Blades of Chaos and figuring out how to use my special attacks there and those go on, go on cooldown. Then I'm switching to my spear. And then there are some enemy types that the weapons are particularly good for, although there aren't any ones that you need to use a specific weapon to beat. There's just ones that have specific advantages. Um, and so there's like a nice sense of like you building in this flow between the three different weapon types where you're not like at least for me i'm not switching between them really rapidly but over the course of the fight if it's a big big fight i may be using every single weapon and like a lot of these different abilities like two or three times and kind of like a loop almost in a like vaguely like a world of warcraft or mmo-esque thing where that's like those games are all built on cooldown and you like building your priority of when to use your moves to optimize the way the cooldowns work. It's like a super light version of that layered on top of the character action stuff. That means your like ideal play style is to use all three of your weapons. Whereas in a lot of character action games, I'll typically kind of figure out which of the weapons is my favorite, like in a Devil May Cry. And then I'll just use that one most of the time. Um, and maybe switch a little bit, but mostly stick to the one I like the most. Or just like pick the weapon I'm going to use for this fight. I think God of War Ragnarok is really good. And especially the introduction of the spear and having three that you're cycling between, I think is really key to like make that feel more complete because you could technically do, and sometimes I would like in the Valkyrie fights do the same thing in God of War 2018. But when it's just between the Leviathan Axe and the Blades of Chaos, I typically just mostly settled on, I'm just going to use the axe for this kind of fight. If it's like mostly one enemy, one big enemy, and I'm mostly just going to use the Blades of Chaos against lots of enemies and maybe switch just use the Renic Attacks and then switch back. Whereas here I was switching and sticking with it, then switching, then sticking with it and doing that throughout the fight. And that just makes the combat feel really flesh, or fresh and really sort of varied throughout those late game combat encounters. Yeah, I completely agree. I think your point about like, there are some enemies that benefit from certain types of moves, but it's not, it does not do the Doom Eternal thing. No. Of like, you have to do this here and execute it that way, and that becomes very repetitive. You're, I think, constantly finding new combinations of things to do. And I definitely fell into a similar pattern you're talking about of based on the cooldowns, kind of moving through the different weapons. And I think three versus two on paper doesn't sound that different, but when you have three and they're all as different as these are, and it's not binary anymore, but it's more of, you know, this triangle. There's something about moving between those that feels so dynamic. If you're ever in a rut, just switch over to something else, um, you know. And and I also think it's worth saying, like, the Blades of Chaos kind of get lost in the conversation, but they get fully explored here in a way they weren't yeah. in the 2018 game because you get them so late. 
Um, and just having those also like is a standout for me. I love those things. I think they're they're it's very fun how they've adapted those from how they worked in the old games into this game. Yeah, and, and I particularly like they because a lot of the moves, the ranged moves for the Blades of Light Chaos are mostly different um, from the previous game. And I like like there's a lot of you can like bounce people around and you're yanking them or pulling yourself towards them. Um, there's like a lot of those moves I found myself really liking. Uh, there's a lot of like good smacking enemies around and slapping them on the ground with the fucking blades of chaos and stuff with it's like heavy attack um when they're juggled in the air yeah like all three of the weapons are great like i think all three of the move sets for all three weapons or for the two returning weapons like they're more developed and better considered move sets um not to say that they were bad in the previous game they're just like more refined here you have more options the options that exist combo into each other um i think better than they did in the last game um it's just yeah like all across the board the combat has seen a lot of refinement and then particularly with the spear like a really big addition that totally i think changes the way you think of the combat um from the previous game yeah it's it's outstanding all of it and it is that level of like refinement and expansion that you know i don't think you often see done this well yeah you know um and and again because and it does go back to what we said earlier when we're talking about leaving it all on the field. That's not just about the story. That is about the combat. It does feel like they did all the big things you would want to do from this system. And I don't feel at the end of this like, oh man, they should have explored, you know, something like this in this game. It's like, no, I feel like everything that I would want to be in there is in there. Yeah, like I can't even really imagine how you would do four weapons, you know, um, even though like technically no. you've got with the D-pad, you could kind of do it. Um, it, it. But it's like, it does feel like the kind of hit on right formula because there was a moment because they wait long enough to give you the spear where i wasn't sure if they were going to give you a new weapon like i coming into the game i assumed at some point you were going to get mjolnir um just because that is what the old god of war games would have done the old god of war games would have found a way somewhere around the midpoint that you kill off thor or like where kratos murders thor to take mjolnir purely just because you want him to have that weapon because it's an iconic weapon from the mythology um but like obviously that would not be very satisfying in a narrative perspective for this game. So like the level, if there's anything that shows how much more restrained and thoughtful these games are, it is the fact that they don't even give you Mjolnir. They're like, no, you don't need it. Like we kind of gave some of the more iconic Mjolnir-esque features to the Leviathan Axe in the first place. So you get to have some of the fun of like calling the weapon back when you throw it and stuff. Um, and it just, you'd have to contrive a weird scenario for kratos to get me on here in the first place um but then there's like well let's so but instead of that we're just going to make up a new weapon and give you a sick fucking spear um and it is a very sick spear it works really well with like the it's got a you know a much more kind of greek quality to it the spear as a weapon and like how they design it specifically which is nice and it kind of ties into kratos's past as a spartan um and i also think it has like the best execution moves there's just some of the execution moves are so fucking gnarly with that spear where you're like impaling someone on it and then reaching around to the end that has gone through the other side of the person and then like grabbing that and twisting the spear to basically like yes. twist them in half um it's like these games are not as sadistic with their violence as the old god of war games but they are still are as satisfying with the violence it's just a much more utilitarian kind of violence kratos is dial dealing out against his foes um and that spear you know spears are just really cool weapons that like the nature of the weapon and how long it is and the different ways you can handle it it means there's lots of cool things you can do with it it's why they're always super cool in like kung fu movies and shit like that 
And I think that they they realize the potential of the spear for all of its sort of uses in this game. Uh, 100% agree, although I will add that all of the execution moves are amazing. There's stuff like, I love all the stuff he does with the Blades of Chaos of just, I mentioned this last time, it's like he's doing a prison shiving, uh-huh. just stabbing over and over again with them. Or with the axe, you have multiple enemy types that he just full-on cuts in half, mm-hmm. like gets on the ground and slices in half and stuff like that. It's uh, it's incredible. And we're not even talking about all the um, like companion stuff, which is really fleshed out as well, like what your companions can do because they have multiple types of arrows and some of that is is useful in combat as well as in puzzles. And you have Atreus's whole combat suite, which yes. I think is outstanding. Like mm-hmm. it's really fun to play with as well. In fact, before you get the spear, I was enjoying the Atreus combat more than the Kratos stuff. Yeah, I was kind of in the so same fresh and different. Yeah, in the same spot, yeah. particularly in like the the big stuff you have right before you get the spear. I was kind of feeling that like you know I'm kind of vibing with Atreus's stuff more in some ways because he's so kind of nimble. Um, and it plays with the sort of the stun mechanics so much more aggressively because you've got, you know, because you have all your arrows and your, like, sonic arrows and stuff um, that, yeah, um, I think, yeah, Atreus's combat is obviously not as deep as Kratos's, and you don't do it nearly as much as you do Kratos's, um, but it's paced so well that you get these, like, really powerful bursts of Atreus's combat, and it's so styled differently um, than, than Kratos that, yeah, like, I was having a great time with that side as well. Very early in the game, there's this line where, uh, I forget the exact scenario where it comes up, but Kratos says something to the effect of, you know, if if Atreus is not stronger than me when he grows up, then I have failed as a father. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's such a striking line. It's, it's And you're like, yes, of course Kratos would believe that, right? And But then it's also kind of silly. You look at it and you're like, well, Kratos is this giant hulking Greek god. Atreus is this skinny little kid with a bow and arrow. How are they going to go about showing that? And I like that, like, through the combat, they show... They, they believably put Atreus on a path where you're like, oh, he absolutely could be as big a threat as Kratos in a very different way. Yes. Part of that is he transforms into animals and rips things apart. But also he has all these other ways he approaches conflicts and he is very strong and capable on his own. And that's just a cool thing. It, it's also, it helps with the character development to do that. But I think from a combat side, it's, it's so cool that they went the distance and fleshed all of that out. Yeah, definitely. Because I think it's very easy to imagine the Treyas combat going bad, you know? Like, I think you can imagine, like, other games trying to do a similar thing, and it's just, like, kind of like in Devil May Cry 5, there's um, that character V that, I, like, is okay. He's a character that does, like, summons, basically, and so it's kind of a little bit more gimmicky uh, combat style, and it's nowhere near as fleshed out as Nero or Dante, the two returning characters, um, who have, like, much more developed combat suites. And I think, like, everybody who played Devil May Cry 5, I think, kind of got tired of V's combat by the end, even though there's not even as much of it, because it's just, like, not as good. Whereas with Atreus, it's paced so perfectly through the game, I don't think you would get bored of it. But it's also um, satisfying, very satisfying in its own right. It doesn't feel like a gimmick, um, the way that that kind of, here's a companion character that you only play as a little bit, has a gimmicky combat style. It's like, that's not how Atreus is. Like, you could very easily imagine another then making another game that uses this as a foundation and builds off of it to make just as rich and complex a style of combat for Atreus as Kratos that would support a whole game um but that preserves the features of Atreus's combat that you get in this game oh totally yeah if they I don't sense that Sony Santa Monica is the kind of studio that would do this but something like 
Uncharted 5 or mm-hmm. Uncharted The Lost Legacy or Spider-Man Miles Morales where it's sort of a DLC but it's really its own game and it's like God of War Atreus and it's about him going and finding the giants like that'd be I'd play the shit out of that yeah yeah that'd be pretty good yeah again I, I sense that they're gonna go on and do something else that's like big and fully sized I mean they never did a touch a DLC for God of War 1 um, I mean they added like New Game Plus and stuff but you know you know what yeah I mean. they did updates but so. yeah they didn't they didn't do any DLC yeah, so anyway, but it's very cool. What else to talk about before we kind of get to the, the final act of this thing? Um, I think we hit on most of the big stuff. I mean, there's like stuff of like, this all kind of happens in the final act. One performance is because I, I was looking at this and this name popped up. Um, a character that's only in it for like one sequence, but I thought was just such an incredible way to realize this character is Surtur, the yeah. flame giant in Muspelheim. Surtur is so fucking cool in this game. Um, Surtur's great. I, there's just something about he He just doesn't give a fuck, you know? He's just like, yeah, sure, Ragnarok, whatever, man. Um, he's, like, so checked out in this. The design of him is this just sort of ashen man living in the realm of the volcanoes. Um, it's just a character that, again, he's only in one scene, and he, you know, sacrifices himself to become the monster to assault the the walls of Asgard. But it's such a different take on Surtur as a character. You know, Surtur is typically depicted kind of like the monster at the end. Or in like Thor Ragnarok, that like the giant fire dude in that movie. That's Surtur. And that's like usually how you see Surtur depicted. And so there's something about this like man of ashes at the end of existence. Who's been there the whole time. He's a primordial being. He predates the gods and and Odin and all that shit. He's from like something way older than that. And he's just like tired um there's something about that characterization that i really struck me and i think it's like it's uh chris browning is the guy the actor and he just fucking nailed that role so much he's great i it kind of feels like if surger were a fucking npc in dark souls yes on the campfire this is who he would be just yeah tired and broken and doesn't have many words of encouragement i also was going to shout out um you do see kratos's wife i forget her name uh, laufey yeah. Laufey, yeah. Um, and she's played by Deborah Ann Wall, mm-hmm. uh, who some people might know from from Daredevil, from True Blood, great actress. And the most like recognizable, this is the human being in the part because uh-huh. they just model her off of Deborah Ann Wall. Um, but really good. And I'm glad that, you know, she was never shown in the first game, but I think it's good that they finally put a face to the name, let her be a person, have that scene. You see the scene where they're going through the woods marking the trees that you cut down at the beginning of God of War 1, or 4, <laughs> God of War 2018. Yeah. And um, it's great. It's a beautiful scene. I'm glad she got to be a character in this game. Yes, yeah. And some of those dream sequences are really powerful. And yes, they, it's it's the right choice, I think, that you you see her here and she's a more active, even though all of she's, she's dead, She her presence is more actively felt in the story. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, you know, I guess this is near the end, but some of these boss fights, Sean, the Heimdall fight, probably my favorite one in the Mm -hmm. game. It's not super challenging necessarily, but Heimdall is such a piece of shit. He's basically like one of the bad bros from a modern Final Fantasy game. Looks like he stepped in out of a Tetsuya Nomura game Uh as the asshole in that game. And, uh, you kill him good. You fight with the spear. That's a great, phenomenal fight. Yeah, that's a great boss fight. I like, um... The giant monster fights in this game are really good. You fight Nidhogger. Um, that's phenomenal. That fight has an amazing end where you like close the interdimensional portal or whatever um, and decapitate it that way. And then um, Garm, the the Hound of Hell, 
um that whole fight is fucking just that like if you're looking for spectacle that one's crazy um that's one of those where you're like how the fuck do they even do this <laughs> it's like because you I, you go across the whole map basically of helheim in this game over the course of that boss fight uh, it's pretty nuts I loved it, and I loved the resolution of that, where you bring back this thing from the beginning of the game where Atreus has these powers with, like, souls, and you have the marbles, and he winds up putting the soul of his of his wolf from the just utterly heartbreaking uh-huh. scene at the beginning of this game where the, the wolf dies, and he puts it into the big hellhound, and it becomes his buddy again. I Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Yeah, and it's good. It's also, like, a good mythological reference because the dog at the beginning is Fenrir or the wolf at the beginning is Fenrir which in mythology is one of Loki's children because Loki gives birth to lots of monsters and Fenrir is um what kills Odin in the original Ragnarok myth um but Fenrir and Garm are often um like there's debates in academia of whether or not they are meant to be two different figures or the same figure referred to in different ways and the similar to like freya and uh, frigg which they play off in these games as well it's like are those two different goddesses is it the same goddess referred to in different ways in different myths um and i think that that's like kind of a fun play to sort of conflate fenrir and garm and make fenrir symbolically loki's child in the same way that jormungandr the world serpent is also in this game symbolically loki's child as he is in the mythology because in this game jormungandr is made by loki and planting that soul in that snake that then gets sent back in time um so it's- when i realized that's what they were doing i like i don't even remember it was like a scene completely unrelated and i was thinking back to like you know why did why did they have a snake in that scene and i went oh fuck that's what they're doing yeah. that's so cool that's such a cool move and it is it's awesome yeah so there's lots of you know they obviously they take huge amounts of liberties with the mythology like they're doing very much their own thing you know odin never fucking murders thor in the original myths or anything um there's also a greek god in the middle of the mythology yes, exactly. so that changes things up a little bit and the yeah. point and part of the point of the game is also that you know you know fate is not written you make your own fate all that kind of stuff so it's like i think it is meant to be that there are lots of the elements of the myth are there um but lots of those elements have also changed um and i think that's like they do a good job of referencing or bringing in some of the mythology stuff but being very free to interpret it and then change it where appropriate for to fit their story i think it's like it's a delicate balance when you're doing this kind of mythological adaptation thing um, but particularly because North mythology is very sketchy in terms of what is preserved. It's mostly just stuff from like the 13-1400s with the prose and poetic eddas, um, which are obviously not like anywhere close to a original source. Uh, I think it's like they do a good job of getting those references in there, uh, being kind of clever with some of the references, but then not letting that interrupt the story that they're trying to tell. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you said this has one of your favorite endings... Of any video game ever. I agree. What specifically were you talking about? Everything. I think it's like the whole <laughs> last bit. Um, I think it's just like... I mean, part of it... Like, for me, it, like it's, it starts with the scene in the tent, kind of. I think it's like everything from there to the very, very end. And specifically the last series of shots where... Of, of how Atreus leaves, like, leaves the image. And then Kratos going and discovering you know, the other side of the triptych. Like, that's specifically the part of the end that I think of as, like, yeah. one of the last, the best series of moments to end a video game on. But the whole sweep of Ragnarok and Kratos, like, embracing his past as a general, like, them bringing that back, I thought was a very smart element in him, like, deciding that it's okay for him to fight. 
um, and for him to take up that mantle as a leader and a general, because that is what he was. He was not just a great warrior. He was a general for the Spartans, and he led men into battle. Um, and then that, everything, it's like everything. It's just so, it's fucking cool. Yes. Well, I would say it, I think it starts with the revelation about Tyr. Oh, yes. Odin, yes. Which is a great twist that led, then leads to the killing of Brock, which is one of the most shocking things in this game. Not just that they would kill Brock, but the way they turn Brock and Sindri from essentially your sort of like comedic craftsman characters in the first game. And they, they're richer than that at parts of 2018, but that's effectively what they are. To parts of the family in this game, to then a death that is so brutal because there's the whole backstory about Brock having already died and his soul being in multiple pieces so he won't get to go to the afterlife. And then Sindri just breaking. And he has had enough and he completely breaks from Atreus and he is angry and he leaves and it's never fixed. Yeah. It is not, unless there's something I completely missed. No. I don't think, like, like if you go to the sort of second ending with Brock's funeral, that is one of the, like, bleakest final notes I've ever seen in anything of, of Sindri leaving and then Mimir going whole. The, his riddle was what gets bigger the more you take out. It's a whole. And then it cuts to black, like brutal and completely unhealed and unhealable. It's one of the like darkest and most brutal turns this game makes. Yeah. Um, and it is like, I think there's something that it, it feels, it's really necessary, I think, for it to like sort of weigh itself down with some more of that complexity that it's not like, you know, I think it would be too easy for this game to end with like a, we we just win, you know, like a shonen anime style. Like we did it, you know, we beat the bad guys and we did and we trapped Odin, so we didn't even have to like confront the idea of Atreus murdering, you know, this like old man or whatever. Like you know, you don't have to like deal with any of those uncomfortable feelings, and it's just good. And it's a happy ending, and Sindri forgives you guys um, because he knows that you mean well, and that's it. I think it's important to sort of weigh down that like the act of trying to break these cycles of vengeance and violence and hatred and abuse that is what kratos like express ex expresses at the end of god of war 2018 is what he's trying to do is break these cycles that have dominated his life and the lives of the people he sees around him um and that like breaking those cycles is not a clean thing um and that you're never going to be 100 successful um and there's going to be people who are hurt and that some relationships are not going to can't are not going to be or cannot be healed, um, or at least at the very least, it would take longer than what this game has to heal that relationship. Um, I think, yeah, there's something like weighty about that that you have to move on, knowing that not everything is going to be okay for everybody all the time, but that you still have to move forward. That you don't just win at the end and it's not happily ever after. That's not what it means to break the cycle. What it means to break the cycle is like do the best you can for the people around you to save as many people as you can to make them as happy as you can but that it's never going to be perfect yeah what do you think about the the narrative move of Sindri coming in and killing Odin in the in the little orb because I think there's you know I could I could see the complaint and I I feel a little mixed on it just in the sense that there is all this narrative work done to kind of like move the characters to a place where they don't need to take that step but then you have another character come in and do it for them. Um, I th I think the game is smarter than that. How would you how would you describe that? Yeah, I don't know. I think it is a complicated moment because yeah, it is. 
Because again, I think it, it comes down to the sense of like things are imperfect. That's like you're fighting for that ideal, but not everybody is going to follow you there, you know? Um, yeah. And, and I think it's like that you can't control everybody. You can't control like those people that come with you. I don't know. It is, it's, it's a, it's a, there's something about the moment that it did strike me as right at the time when I saw it, that like Odin, that you can forgive people, but not everybody's going to forgive someone like Odin. You know, he's made too many enemies. He's destroyed too many things. Um, that you can forgive him and you can deal with that in your way, but that is not the way that everyone's going to deal with their grief. Yeah. I think there's, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a couple ways to see it. I think there's also a, I kind of feel like there's a little bit of, we really want to make it clear there's not going to be a sequel uh -huh. to this game. So we're going to have Sindri come in and, but it is Sindri and it is like, it is part of this character arc for him of that he is He's gone yes. at the end of this game. Like, he is not the person you knew earlier on. He has been really broken by this grief. And he has uh, every right in the fucking world to do yeah. what he does there, right? Um, Odin does have it coming. And there is also, I think, a little bit of a challenge to, like, does does Kratos's personal growth really outweigh the, like, safety of the realms and the emotions of all these people Odin has hurt? You know, it's a, it's a dynamic. It's a challenging moment. I think I like yeah. it because it's prickly and it's hard to pin down. And I think it feels right, but I think it feels right in part because it feels wrong, if that mm. makes sense. I know that sounds weird to say, but it is, it's a little off, and I think that's intentional. Yeah, because I, I, I think there's just something about, like, if it just ended with, you know, the, the, the very clean ending that they do set up, which is we've taken the prophecy you see, which is you have seen the tablet or whatever, the image of loki with an old man that you initially with a beard that you initially interpret as kratos cradle in his arms and like his and the soul leaving the body and you interpret that as kratos being killed his soul leaving because he's fucking dead and loki being in despair and that's how the myth is interpreted at the end of god of war 2018 by kratos that informs a lot of what he does over this game it's what loki sees or Treus sees in uh jotunheim in this game and he interprets it that way and is like trying to struggle against that. And then like the clever inversion is that it is not Kratos that he is cradling. It is Odin he's cradling and the soul is leaving the body, not because he has killed him, but because he is trapping him. Um, and it's like there's there's something kind of very clean about that ending. And I think this just like I like the messiness that's like it's not it sh it shouldn't really be that clean it should be there should be something thornier about it there should be something messier about the notion of trying to sort of break fate isn't that you have swapped the proper nouns that occur in the prophecy it's that like something new something else has happened something unexpected something out of left field um and it's like that's what that's what like making your own choices is that's what defying prophecy is is like it's not just the clean version that they give you as much as that is like how all of these stories go you know every story that is about prophecy always like has to find a way to make the prophecy be kind of mostly right you know um and i think i like this of that i think they kind of break that notion a little bit in this game yeah no i totally agree and um it's definitely, it's interesting stuff. You also have Odin killing Thor, taking him off the table as well, which is a brutal scene. And I think we already talked about Thor's character arc, but feels right to just the like, the utter, and again, it speaks to the narcissism of, of, of uh, Odin, 
where Kratos is let, letting Atreus kind of go and flourish, Odin is so, you know, owning of Thor, having to have him in his palm, that that extends to, if you're not going to just be in lockstep with me, I'm going to fucking kill you because I don't need you. Yeah, I think a really powerful thing that, like, highlights how effective this game's story is, is that it opens with a fight between Kratos and Thor, where you're, like, super eager about it, right? If you're like me, like, he's like, yes, like, Kratos and Thor, I want to see this fight, I want to play it, like, look how cool this is. And then at the end of the game, you come around to the rematch. But when you get to the rematch, I was like, I don't want to fucking kill Thor. Like, I feel so yeah. bad for this guy. You have seen how much he wants to be bad, better and then how much he has been beaten down by his relationship with Odin um, and how that has driven him to, like, fucking alcoholism. I think them turning that kind of, you know, iconic element of Thor's character, you know, both in the mythology than in like popular depiction, um, and making it this really kind of sad thing that's like it's it's not just he's like a party guy who gets drunk or whatever. It's like he's getting drunk because he's being emotionally abused by his father and he doesn't know how else to deal with it. Um and like seeing Thor getting beaten down so much and Loki or Treus identifying that there is more to him and trying to kind of reach to that in some of those sections that they're together. Um, and, and you see how, how nice Thrude is and how much uh, Thor cares for Thrude and having all that taken away by Odin is really brutal. Like that is in some ways, even the more brutal death for me, because I think there's something I like sympathize so deeply with Thor as a character. Like the Brock death is very shocking. Um, but it's also him being a character who has already died, I think like kind of sets him up for this death in some way that I was able to more accept it. Whereas with Thor, it was like, I found it very upsetting that Thor gets killed like this after everything he's been through. And then he's just sort of tossed aside by Odin. Yeah, it's there's no absolution or denouement to it. It is just yeah. a, a brutal ending for the character. But yeah. But then you do have that final scene where we get our, our first hard cut in either of the yep. God of Wars is when the, the, they're getting out. And then we have a hard cut and we have Kratos wake up and we have the final scene sort of in the... Um, where are they? They're sort of in like the the area in the center of the map. Yes, from the, I, th I think they're yeah. like basically in the mountain from right. the first game. Yeah, they're, they're like right. in like the, the area around those mines or whatever that you go through. Yeah, but you have this big kind of classic kind of game ending scene of going through and talking to everybody one last time um, with Atreus on the way to seeing Kratos. Um, and all of those interactions are beautiful. I love his his last like interaction with Mimir when he mm -hmm. sees him is is really touching. And then yeah, that final scene of Atreus going off to kind of forge his own legacy with the giants, and then Kratos seeing himself as the as the All Father being worshipped, uh, being loved, yes. being worshipped out of love, um, and and crying is the most goddamn beautiful gut-wrenching thing I've ever seen. Jesus Christ. It's it's gorgeous. And they set it up in so many beautiful ways. You know, there's a literal kind of setup for it with Odin having this thing where he confronts Kratos and says, you're a god, but no one's ever worshipped you. Like, what are you? What what makes you a god, right? Yeah. Um, and this is where I think, again, Odin and Kratos are paired and that they're both fathers, but one is a narcissist and one isn't. And like, Odin's version of, of worship is completely narcissistic, right? And what Kratos is able to see in that moment and because of who he's become, it just, it feels so much like, yes, that could be his next step. And it's such a cool journey for this character. And, you know, something I also want to say about this game, like 
I think it's so easy to imagine the version of God of War Ragnarok that ends with Kratos dying for his son and Atreus becomes the main character. And I love that I think that game, I think this game knows that that is an expectation you might have going into it and it says from the beginning to the end this is not a game about dying. This is a game about the choice and the act of living. Yeah. It is a game about picking yourself up and what it means to actually continue to live your life and not choose death. And I think the the only way you can end that story is by giving Kratos a vision of a real future and kind of leaving us on that note. And again, just one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in a video game. Yeah, and it's it's it, it comes through so much of like the whole sweep of the ending where you know a lot of it to me is also, is set up with Kratos' choice to lead the army um, into Ragnarok and him sort of embracing something of who he was in his past you know he's been running away from all that for so long um but him choosing to do it for the right reasons right like he's he's choosing he recognizes that like action and violence can be and must be used um for justice for something for like a a better purpose for a better outcome for people um and for then for like the lives of these people who have been abused and tossed away by this narcissist um like dictator basically um and the way that throughout the first game and particularly this game you have assembled this army of all these people whom you have helped um and fought alongside in these bonds that kratos has like legitimately built between all these people particularly with freya um and him then choosing to take that mantle of a leader and lead them into battle and to be a general again for something new and for something better not for war not for conquest um but for you know compassion and kindness and empathy uh and that's so powerful and to see that the result of that is that he has earned this kind of level of adulation um that is you know worship adjacent or whatever but it is this like that people love and care for him and that he never imagined that that could ever happen in his life even before i think his first family whom he did love and care about his like sandra his original wife and uh calliope his daughter um, but he was always a Spartan. He was always a soldier. He was always a killer. And now he can be someone who saves other people. Um, like that's just such a powerful moment for him to realize and to be on that journey with his character for him to reach that point um, to realize that people can love him. Uh, but then also the the parting with Atreus is so powerful. He has that line where there's this whole thing in the second half of the game where they make a promise when they're reunited, um, right? That like, Kratos will keep a part of Atreus with him and so that when he's alone he will think of Atreus and like what would Atreus do and keep him in check and Atreus will do the same thing because they know that they are incomplete without the other person um, and that even if they're not physically there they need to be there for each other in spirit and then that is like and it comes up multiple times they keep on talking about that promise in the second half is really powerful but the payoff for that line at the end is so powerful because when Kratos when Atreus says, I have to go, Kratos is the line he says is, Atreus will stay. He points to himself and Loki will go, right? That that the part of Atreus that is his father will stay with him. Um, that that he, Atreus has to go out and make his own life and be his own man um, and move forward. And that sentiment is so powerful that like, even if he's gone, that they will always be connected because of this real relationship they have built up not just because they're father and son but because of this time and this love that they have put into each other that will continue to guide both of them now 
on their separate journeys. And then that is when he is able to see that he is loved is after that message has been given and Loki has walked off like stage left. Um, there's something so powerful about the way he just sort of canters off the, the frame and that's the last time you see him. Um, it's just a beautiful moment. It's a beautiful sequence. And I think it's so perfectly set up by everything that this story was doing. And it is the absolute perfect note. As you say, is not, I think, the thing that most people expected. I think most people expected that Kratos would die or at least he would nominally die and maybe be resurrected in this game because it's not the first time he's fucking died. He's died like three times at this point if you played the old games. Um, but that like <laughs> something like that would happen. Um, and instead it being, no, like they both live, they both choose to go on living. That is the the punchline or whatever to Kratos' story is that the man calls death to help him carry the logs, not to take his life. Um, that I think it's just a perfect ending to this game. Yeah. And I, you know, we're in a, we're in a mode of a lot of stories with sort of legacy or longstanding fictional characters where we're, where we're finally giving them deaths, you uh -huh. know, of like the, the spoilers for a year old movie now, but no time to die. The last Daniel Craig, James Bond movie ends with Daniel Craig's James Bond dying. Um, you have the new Star Wars movies has just kills every old Star Wars character. Uh, who knows what this new Indiana Jones, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny which does sound like an Indiana Jones mobile game. Yes. Um, with a lot of microtransactions in it. Um, who knows how the movie will be, but, you know, who knows? That might end. Given how Harrison Ford likes to kill his characters, maybe that ends with him dying. Just like, you know, I feel like symbolically The Dark Knight Rises ends with Batman dying. You know, we just, we're in a mode of, same with Batman Arkham Knight. <laughs> symbolically ends with Batman dying. Um, so we keep doing this, and I think this game's saying, fuck that. No. And I don't think it's saying we're going to keep him alive so that we can do the next god of war game i don't know how you do another god of war game with kratos in it frankly but i i think it's such a beautiful vision and i think it says so much more to the world I, and i like some of these other things i'm talking about i think particularly no time to die but like i, I think it's a it's refreshing yeah it's different yeah and i like that it, it leaves it open to do more because like i can imagine like i think you'd want to obviously take time before you come back to it but i like knowing that kratos is out there and, and obviously there's always the promise of there are other mythologies that you can go visit in this franchise, but I like the notion that like Kratos has broken the cycle, right? Like you can't that like even if they do do more God of Wars, I can't imagine Kratos killing another god, or at least certainly not the way you know he kills Heimdall in this game, or killed Baldur in the last game, or he killed name every single Greek god ever in the previous games before <laughs> that. You know, um, like he already slowed down his pace pretty substantially in the new ones. But I do feel like he has moved on from that place in what he was finally. And that like that is part of the ending of this game is that he succeeded. And I think there's still room with Atreus to go off on adventures and for him to tell his story and Kratos could be involved there. Like I think you, you know, if you ask me to write a like come up with an idea for another story involving these characters, I think you can definitely do it. Um, but it means that it would be a new story about new ideas, new character arcs, probably involving new characters. Um, but it's it's nice to know that these people are out there in this world having adventures and getting into hijinks um, and improving and growing and all that stuff. Do you think God of War could continue as like a a style, but without these characters specifically? Like there's a God of War Egypt, and it's not Kratos, it's not anyone else. It's a new, fresh start with some of the same gameplay ideas. I think, or does it have yeah. to have Kratos to be God of War? 
I mean, I think you could certainly do it. Um, I think it would be hard. I think it would, honestly, I think in some ways, I think it would almost be harder now than it was to, for them to make the choice of like when they did God of War 2018 and bringing Kratos back there. I think like that was a window where not only was the franchise dormant for a little bit, but also at that point, people were fed the fuck up with Kratos. You know, like people were done with that style and that character what he was like was a you know he was a fucking punchline at that point because they had you know done the three games then they did god of war ascension there were like the fucking psp games like kratos was done to death and he had not changed at all um and so there's a real opportunity there if they wanted to to say no like people don't necessarily even love kratos that much or at least that was not the sentiment at the time um so that would have given them a spot to say let's reboot god of war with a new character keep the name keep like some of the ideas but do something totally different but now i think everybody fucking loves kratos like he's like one of the most iconic beloved characters in playstation in a way that he was in god of war like one and two back in the day um but they have put him back into that kind of pantheon of characters again um just in a totally different style to where like i don't know what would be the point like yeah i i i'll watch more Christopher Judge Kratos. Again, I think you'd have to come up with like a new story and new ideas and new themes and like, and I'd want to wait more time before you do it. Um, but I think like there's such an affection for these characters in this world that like, I can imagine Atreus getting wrapped up in his quest for giants ending up in Egypt and getting into some sort of conflict with the gods there and Kratos learning about that and kind of to help him out. And there's a whole story there and a new cast of characters there. But I think it, it is hard for me to imagine moving on from Kratos at this point with how much love and affection people legitimately have for that character, kind of almost in a meta way with what you see yes. at the end of the game. Absolutely. So here's my, here's my pitch for the next God of War game. And it's going to start with, I have a little story. I was technically spoiled on the ending of this game, hmm. but I did not know. I wasn't aware I was spoiled because I thought it was a joke. I was This was early when I was playing the game. I guess YouTube knew I was playing God of War. And so in my recommends, I saw I was scrolling through, probably watching VTuber clips for yes. the fucking VTuber podcast. And I saw a video that was, it said, the, the title of the video was like, God of War. God of War ending, Kratos becomes the god of peace. And then the, the <laughs> like the image, the like th- th- screen cap was big text, God of peace. And it was Kratos like, and it was someone had altered the image of Kratos to be like ugly crying, like crying heavily. Um, he does cry at the end of the game, but it's just a few tears. Yeah. It's not, you know, waterworks. And I was like, oh, that's, that's, a, that's funny. That must be a fun parody video. And it's not because... It, it, they don't say it, but that is yeah. kind of the implication, right? So my my pitch is I think the next game needs to be God of Peace. It's just called God of Peace. And there's no combat, zero, no blood, no killing. It is all about him being a, a peaceful arbiter between people. Just come up with like, it's the, it's the most lavish, AAA, high budget, like indie game walking sim ever made. Uh, and I want them to put the full force behind that and see if they can get it to sell like 20 million copies. And and Kratos needs to have like a tie-dye shirt with like a peace sign on it, you know, and he's got like big sunglasses and he's smoking some reefer. Um, and it's just like, you got to get full hippie Kratos. Um, like if that's what they do, I would be totally into that direction. 
Yeah, it's like the way you like you you walk, you're going through the world and like he's trying to like defuse conflicts and there's people fighting instead of going in and battling them. You have to like there's a mini game where you have to like prepare your finest weed to like get them to calm down and then offer it to them. Uh, and just yeah, all sorts of you know, he can throw hearts at people now to like calm them down. It's going to be great. Yeah, I think I think God there's peace. yeah something really here. I'm sure Sony's like very eager um, to just throw the biggest budget ever committed to a video game um, for God of Peace, the hippie simulator. I don't think Sony Santa Monica has ever published a non God of War game, but I think they've maybe worked on some others. I would love to see them possibly just do something completely fresh after this. That would be pretty cool because they're such a talented group. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I would be. Yeah, again, I think you could do more with God of War. You can go on other adventures. You can do other things in this world, um, in this style. But yes, it would also be very cool to see this studio and these people go off and do um, new things, make a new IP, new games. Um, yes, that would be cool. Because they did kind of effectively get to do uh -huh. the Horizon Zero Dawn thing because it's Kratos, but otherwise it's completely different, yeah. right? Like, they got to make a new game. But it would be, you know, cool to see, like, what is their Horizon? What is their Ghost of Tsushima? You know, um, just it's, it's obviously ludicrously talented group of people. And I know Corey Barlog is still there working on something. We yes. don't know what it is. But so, so I, I, this isn't even really a, a guess. This is more of a prediction. They are working on something. Yes, yeah, because Corey Barlog was nominally involved in the development of this game, but it had, as is appropriate for the God of War franchise, did have a different director, Eric Williams, which has done, he's done some videos, um, like interviews I've seen since. And it's really interesting. Um, hearing him talk about the game. I mean, he's like also like a very different, clearly like a very different style of director than Corey Barlog. And I think that like comes across in the game. And it's it's interesting. Um, but yes, like, so yes, Corey Barlog is there with another team that they're working on something. Um, but this, but I do, it's one of the things I love about this franchise is with the exception of Corey Barlog, who did God of War 2 coming back for 2018, they always had a different game director um, for all the different games. And I like that this game kept that tradition and i think it preserves part of what that tradition did for the classic god of war games which is it gives it a very distinct feel the way that god of war 2 is feels very distinct from god of war 1 even if it's the same basic mechanics and stuff the style feels so different and god of war 3 stylistically feels very different than the first two games it's smart i think more game studios should do this because i think it keeps the actual like studio culture alive in a better way where like you know naughty dog we you know whatever your thoughts on last of us part two we know has become maybe a little too i think enthralled to the auteur thing mm -hmm. and it's become they've had a lot of like turnover in the lower staff and stuff like that and there's a because eric williams he was there for all the old yes. god of war games like this is a this this team has been together a very long time there's lots of new people but there's a lot of continuity as well and i think it helps when you're saying okay there isn't one creative genius at our studio we're all falling in lockstep with this is a team and we're going to change it up every time yeah. i think that seems smart to me Definitely. Yeah. Anything else to say about one of the best games of the year? I'm sure we'll be talking about it when we do top tens. Yes, it's a it's a hell of a game. Um, I think we mentioned it last time when we talked about it, but it deserves mentioning is how good Bear McCurry's score is. Jesus uh, Christ. Fucking amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot like there's a lot of new music in this game. The the yes. soundtrack is out there now. Um and it's like obviously it has all of its like kind of like new versions of some of the returning themes. Uh, but it wasn't until I looked at the soundtrack that I was like, oh, right, yes. He created, like, you know, different kinds of music for all the different realms and stuff. And there's, like, the combat music is different in which realm you're in. Like, there's a huge amount of different music. 
Um, but then also all the kind of returning elements are incredible. And some of like those stings that you get with the God of War theme for the previous game, like when Kratos blows the the Gjallar horn and the music swells when Ragnarok begins and you get the this hugely triumphant version of his main theme. Um, all that stuff is fucking just killer throughout the whole game. It you know it redounds to the benefit of games like this, but it is fucking crazy that Bear McCreary is not like the biggest composer in Hollywood. Yeah, he is so fucking good. Everything he does, he hits out of the park. And you know he's the one good part of that shitty Lord of the Rings show on Amazon. Um, God, just what a fucking composer! And this is such a huge achievement. Yeah, it's just like yeah, it's 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 absolutely amazing score people have not listened to just like the music on its own it is it is a very good score to listen to it makes you feel very powerful when you are trying to grade 500 (laughs) fucking assignments or whatever and then you get this big you know male choir and these very deep horns it's like i can do this i am the god of of fucking grading (laughs) that's they should just do a spinoff god of grading god of peace God of cooking, it's Kratos as a teacher, yes. as a chef. Just do all these like little spin-offs. I would love yeah, that. Yeah, it's like do How would with, Kratos act in a school? It'd be great. Yeah, do with Kratos what like they did with Mario back in the day, where Mario's in like all those like edutainment games and stuff like that. I'd be so into it. Oh my god. All right. Good good year for video games. Good couple last couple months of the year. December, I'm excited. I uh, was just preloading uh Witch on the Holy Night. Mahotsukai um, no Yoru Very on good. my Switch, the new visual novel. Well, it's an old visual novel being remade, first time in English from Type Moon. Uh, we've got Crisis Core, the remake of Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core coming out. I'm psyched for that. Um, so good end to the year as well. But yeah, and I've got some stuff I need to catch up on. It's been crazy. You want to do a brief look back at this year in podcast, Sean? Sure. This was a big fucking year. The beginning of this year, Sean was our Mobile Suit Gundam the Origin series. That was still this year, which oh, is crazy Jesus to me. Jesus Christ. Yeah. That started in January was our six. We did Gundam the Origin. This was also on Weekly Suit Gundam, obviously, one at a time. So we did all of those. So we had all of those. We had uh, Elden Ring. We had Kimetsu no Yaiba Season 2. We had The Batman with Robert Pattinson. We did our first Jujutsu Kaisen episode because Jujutsu Kaisen Zero was also this year. We did all of that before we even get to fucking March. Uh, we did a podcast retrospective on Sonic the Hedgehog 2, the classic game, which we timed with the movie Sonic 2, yes. otherwise unrelated to the game Sonic 2. Uh, yeah, all our reviews of Elden Ring, which was like a, <laughs> I'm just looking at this, like six weeks of the podcast uh-huh. is like Elden Ring, Elden Ring, Elden Ring, Elden Ring. Um, God, we had uh, the one good Marvel thing this year. We had Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. We had Gundam Build Divers, the bad one and the good one. We had Obi-Wan Kenobi. That was this year. And then we get to June and we had a 10 for 10, our 10th anniversary podcast spectacular, where we put out a 10-hour podcast. I think one of our best episodes yep. ever. That took a lot of work. That was a good one. <laughs> that was a good one. We caught all the way up with Weekly Suit Gundam and did a three-part, three-year anniversary celebration that if you added it all up, is probably also close to 10 uh-huh. hours. Because <laughs> we're lunatics. Um, we had Thor Love and Thunder. That was terrible. We had Gundam Kukuru's Doan's Island. Fucking great. Yep. We did a retrospective on Resident Evil 4. That was so fun to do. We had Dragon Ball Super Superhero. We started Japanimation Station and did all of our Full Metal Alchemist stuff. Um, we did an episode on Avatar, the not the last airbender, the James Cameron movie. We ranked the 10 best video game controllers of all time in our most thrilling episode ever. And we had our 30th birthday podcasts. 
this was a cool year for the podcast. That's such a fun set of topics. Yes. And and there's like four or five podcasts that we've effectively recorded for Japanimation Station that aren't even out yet. That Yep. Yeah, it's it's And we have a big list of things that we haven't gotten around to, like Enter the Matrix. Yeah, motherfucker. <laughs> it's coming. Um yeah. We'll do it at some point. Maybe maybe that's we can commit. That'll be something we record over the break and get that to you sometime in the new year. You know, I've got that copy is still sitting right over there of Into the Matrix and Path of Neo. I have had, Jonathan, an original Xbox sitting in my fucking entertainment system for like a goddamn year, unused, just waiting for the day to play Into the Matrix because it's like, I know we're going to do it eventually, so I don't want to put the original Xbox away. So it's just been sitting there, this giant fucking black and green slab just looking at me every time i sit down to watch the tv or play a fucking video game it's just staring me in the face saying why haven't you played into the matrix yet so yeah we should probably do that 